I was in the Air Force from 2016 to 2023. I was an E5, and I was a 4-0 X1, which is aerospace medical technician. And then halfway through my career, I don't even remember what the code was, but it's just like a special duty assignment. So same same AFSC, but I transitioned over to be an air medical evacuation technician, and I did that from 20 to 23. What got you interested in the Air Force originally? Were you doing anything beforehand or...? I was, I didn't join until I was 21. I was like working in, working in restaurants in Maine and kind of like going nowhere fast. Like I was working late and like going out all the time and partying. And um, I come from a pretty long line of veterans in my family. My grandfather was in the army in World War II. My uncle Jack was in the Air Force. And then my cousins, they're both pilots in the Air Force. And then my cousin is in the Marine Corps. And other uncles and great uncles. Um, so like the military, I was always like interested in the military and war. And like I did, <clears throat> I did like every book report in school about World War II. It didn't matter if it was social studies or science. I would like make it about World War II somehow. So I was always into military and history. And a buddy of mine at the time was going to do pararescue in the Air Force. And he was like, you should join the Air Force. And I was like, well, I'm not going to be like a special ops dude. Like I'm not. I'm not cut out for that. I like know myself well enough. Like, but I thought about the Air Force and I thought about being, um, thought about the military. I, th- I wanted to be a Navy doc. I wanted to be a corpsman, but the Navy recruiter was not there. And the Air Force recruiter was an E4 and he was in like khakis and like a polo shirt and had long hair and like five o'clock shadow. And he was like, <laughs> you should join the Air Force. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And then, you know, typical recruiter lied to me. I went in open general without a job, and then I successfully managed to get aerospace medical technician, which was my number one choice. And yeah, that's how it ended up. Best decision I ever made. I definitely like feel like this newer generation might not be as inclined to join the military. There's like a lot of you know stigma and nobody trusts the government anymore, that kind of thing. But like, I think it's a pretty good catch-all for like, you don't know what you want to go to school for, join the military. You don't know what you want to do with your life, join the military. You know what I mean? Like I thought it was a pretty decent decision, like as far as structure and the job and everything I gained from it. And yeah, I had a good time. Yeah, that was kind of my thing too when I went and uh, joined the Marines. Because I wasn't sure what I was going to be doing once I got out of school. So I went to the Marines for a while and uh, tried to figure it out. And for the most part, I did. And by the time I got out, I I think I had it figured out. Yeah. I definitely like, I'm happy I made the decision. And I was 21, like I said, and like, I wasn't interested. I I went to culinary school for like a semester and it was just like, that's, I'm not going to do this either. <laughs> like I tried, <laughs> I was interested in it, but I was like, ah, I'm not going to do this either. Didn't want to be a cook, M- cook MOS? No. Yeah. That's <laughs> this, that job in the air force is called services and they do like everything. They work at the gym. They can work in the dining facility. They could work super random jobs. But people specifically told me, don't, you don't want to be services. And I was like, okay. But those are good dudes. Like, it's a, every job's important. So, yeah. Yeah. So I'll openly admit, I don't know a whole lot about the Air Force. The most yeah, I know cool. about the Air Force was when I did a, my high school had a JROTC that was Air Force, but it was a complete joke. I only did it for like two years. And so I'm just, I'm just curious about like, so going through like the training cycle. So I think there's probably like what, there's probably like a general training cycle that all airmen go through. And then what, how is the specific job training when you finally got to go do your training for your job? So yeah, basic, it was obviously pretty easy compared to like army or the Marines. 
think it was seven and a half weeks or eight and a half weeks. I can't remember. But yeah, you know, typical stuff. Learn the history of the Air Force, learn the ranks, marching, all that stuff. Minimal, you know, combatives, weapons. I would say like the difference, the difference, like the Air Force is like very specific about like they're there to make you like an expert technician. Your job in the Air Force is to be the best at your job. Where I feel like the Army and like the Marines, it's like no matter what your job is, like you're a Marine and like the history and like the legacy of the Marines, it's like a little bit more like military. You know what I mean? Like the Air Force, <laughs> the Air Force is like, it's still a lethal military branch and we all have the same mission, kill bad guys. You know what I mean? But it's like very, very job specific. Like you need to be a subject matter expert at your job, an expert technician at your job. So I did basic I was 21, like the majority of the people were 18. So I was like the old dude, which was fun and did well in basic, like, you know, whatever. It's funny how like basic training makes you like <clears throat> stupid again. You don't know how to walk, screw shit up all the time. Like that kind of thing. Hey, Zeke. Sorry. <laughs> it's birthday and I got him a toy. So damn, that's rough. But um, <laughs> Zeke, chill, dude. So. I did basic December 2016. I graduated at the end of January of 2017. And then um, training for being a medic or medical technician was at Fort Sam Houston, which is like 15 minutes away from Lackland. And it's like a, it's a big joint base. It's an army base, but then there's huge Navy and Air Force presence there. Cause like basically all Air Force medical jobs, Navy medical jobs and army medical jobs are at Fort Sam Houston. Um, and so like half my class was Navy, half my class was Air Force. So Navy corpsmen and um, Air Force medical technicians. <laughs> that was like an interesting dynamic. The difference between like Navy corpsmen who like, cause basically you do your EMT basic. That's like the first portion of your training is getting your EMT. And like 68 whiskeys are like, they have a way bigger scope. They have way more responsibility. They deal with way more like trauma and battlefield stuff. So their training was significantly longer and more intense. Navy docs didn't have to get their EMT at the time when I was in. I don't know if they still do now, but training was good. It was like, you know, just basically preparing for the national registry of EMTs. So I think that was like four, five months. Um, and you do a bunch of labs, you learn anatomy and physiology, and you have like skills, you learn how to, you know, basic medical stuff, IVs, blood draws, tourniquets, um, just like your basic fundamentals uh, to be like a EMT, take the national registry. And a lot of people have a hard time passing that. It's a weird test. It could be anywhere from 60 to 120 questions. And um, so some people ended up not passing that, <clears throat> and they get reclassed into another job. And then the flip side, like the Navy, a lot of those dudes were like buds washouts, like seals, uh, seal washouts. So they were like biggest chip on their shoulder. Like a lot of them were like huge dicks. Like some of them quit buds on like the first day and would like act like they were better than people. And I'd be like, dude, like we're the same. We are the same. <laughs> You're not, <laughs> you know what I mean? No disrespect to those dudes. So yeah, I was at Fort Sam Houston from January to like June. And then the second phase of your training is you go to like a, a big Air Force hospital for like a six or seven week uh, clinical rotation. So you can like actually get your hands on patients. Um, so I went to Travis Air Force Base in California and did my clinicals there. And that was like all summer. And then I uh, got to my first duty station, Albuquerque, New Mexico in August of 2017. 
So all in all, between basic and tech school, it was like nine months, something like that. Anything, I mean, I'm. it's hard to remember all that stuff, but any specific <laughs> questions you have, hit me up. <laughs> no, just curious generally. And so, yeah, when you finally made it to, yeah, I always forget New Mexico, that's like a big Air Force, uh, that's a big Air yeah. Force state, the base and everything. Yeah, there's three, I think there's three Air Force bases in New Mexico. I was at Kirtland, which is in Albuquerque. And then the other ones are like, in the middle of nowhere. It's Cannon and Holloman, I think are the other two ones. Um, I was originally supposed to go to New Jersey, but I'm from the East Coast and I didn't want to go to New Jersey. So I was trying to find anybody who would switch. Nobody wanted to switch. Everybody had orders to Japan, England, Germany, Italy, like nobody would switch with me. And then the last day that we could switch, I found this kid who was from New Jersey and the base was like 30 minutes from his house. And he was like, I'll switch with you. Which was weird to me. I was like, don't you want to go somewhere else? But yeah, I went to Albuquerque. And yeah, I just worked in like a family medicine clinic, just seeing active duty, dependents, retirees, spouses. And I hated it. I like, <laughs> I like regretted joining pretty quick because it just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. The most military stuff that I did was like wear a uniform, but like the hospital was off base. So I wasn't even on the base. And it was connected to the VA. So the majority of people that I saw were civilians, retirees, dependents. And it was just like super boring. Like I worked with a bunch of civilians. I had great leadership, like at the higher up level, like squadron commanders and the group commanders. Medical jobs and medical, uh, military medical people in general, like super lax. Like you have a pretty relaxed relationship with officers, especially because you like work with them all day. It's not like you don't stand every time an officer comes in the room because they're there nonstop all day. So the Air Force is like pretty chill. Like I said, it's very much so about be the best medical technician, nurse, doctor, whatever it is. But I was super unfulfilled. I hated it. Like I hated it instantly. Uh, and my supervisor sent me to this training called C-STARS. It was called Center for Sustainment of Trauma and Readiness Skills. And it was two weeks at a trauma center in Baltimore. And it was funny because he was like, oh, this will like re-inspire you. This will make you want to stay in. And I went there and like, dude, Bal like I just watched people suffer and die. I saw the most, <laughs> like I just saw shootings and car crashes and suicides and like all this stuff. So I just spent two weeks like being a brand new medical technician, never having seen like trauma trauma patients. And uh, it was rough, but it was really eye-opening. And um, one of the things that they talked about was aeromedical evacuation, which is like the Air Force's premier capability of transporting patients on fixed-wing aircraft, C-17s, C-130s, KC-135s, basically any cargo or refueler jet you can find a way to move a patient on. So I came back and I told my supervisor, like, I think I want to do AE. And he was like, yeah, dude, let's do it. So like, I, I owe that dude a lot. We're still friends now. But he was like very much so like, if this is what you want to do, like if you want to go do something cool, you want to go be a flyer, you want to go be air crew and do that whole thing. He like really pushed me to do it. Um, and I'm glad I did. You couldn't apply at the time. You had to be like an E4. So I had to wait till I made E4. And then, yeah, I left. <clears throat> I went to SEER school in like October of... 2019 and that's when i started feeling like way more into like being in the military because i was like oh this is like real real shit and seer was like the best training i've ever done and i really started like feeling more like 
we call it blue in the Air Force, like when you're super like hoorah, like ready to go. <laughs> I was excited. I was like, oh, damn, I'm like learning really cool stuff. And like, yeah, I don't know how much you know about SEER. I'm sure you've heard stories, but it's like really great training. Like it has its all the getting slapped and all that stuff is that's like pretty secondary because it's just like the training and the information is like really valuable and really important and the instructors do a great job so i had a really good time with that one of my buddies from high school he joined he joined the marines i didn't even know he did and he joined as a uh, crew chief yeah and in the marine corps all crew chiefs gotta go through gotta go through steer training so i just bumped i bumped into him at the at the uh, jacksonville airport right outside of camp lejeune one day and he's like yeah i just got done with steer training a little while ago i'm like because he was like a little dude yeah. i never knew he was even interested in joining the military i never thought he would be in the military and then all of a sudden i found out he went to steer school i'm like okay yeah and then uh my sister-in-law she's in the she's a crew chief for black Hawks in the art in the army national guard oh cool and uh she was trying to she was trying to go to steer school this past year but because of her units upcoming deployment she didn't get to go i don't think and some other stuff too but yeah, yeah. I was just curious. Uh, best and worst story from Steer School. Best and worst story. So the best story was you do the survival. You like break up it in blocks: survival, evasion, resistance, escape. And the survival portion, you spend six days out in the woods. You know, you like kill a rabbit, do that whole thing. You know, purify water. You ruck a lot. It's like the only time people in the Air Force ruck is at Seer. <laughs> And so like the last day you do like a 12 hour evasion, like all the dudes pretend that they're like a foreign military that's trying to capture you and you have to like evade and you have to make a bunch of different checkpoints and blah, blah, blah. And I immediately lost both my canteens. I had like canteens around, I had a strap and I had two canteens right here. And I like the second I started running, I lost both my canteens and I was like sick. And we were like out of food at that point. So it was like a super rough day, cold as hell. It was like October up in the mountains in Washington. It was super, it was actually November at that point. It was super cold and miserable. And then eventually you make it to the checkpoint and you get rescued by these dudes who are like, you know, pretending to be like special ops dudes who they show up on, you know, ATVs and four wheelers and stuff and they rescue you. And then the like culmination of that was, um, you make it to the checkpoint, they rescue you, you go down this road and then they have, they were like grilling hot dogs. <laughs> so like I hadn't like eaten or drank in like almost a full day and then um, just smashed like hot dogs and chips and soda and like instantly threw up because I hadn't eaten and just like over ate so fast. But that was like hilarious that it was like the end of that portion of training. And it was like the best meal that I've ever had because I was like starving. And I felt like I like <laughs> was like about to die. And then the worst story, the fun, the the camp, you know, where they slap you around and interrogate you and do all that stuff. I was with a buddy of mine who I won't name because he's still in, but English was his second language. And they like give you instructions, but they call like your hands, your paws, they call gloves, paw covers. <laughs> and uh they wanted everybody to take off their gloves and he was standing next to me and he didn't take off his gloves. And we all have like numbers. I think I was like three, nine or something. And the dude looked at me and he was like, why didn't your buddy take off his paw covers? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and he was like, you're going to, you're going to fucking pay for what he did. And I was like, Oh shit. So they threw us in our cells and the cells are like <clears throat> super tiny. 
and you have like a can to piss and shit in. <laughs> and they like, I was just like sitting there, like they told me I was going to pay, but I never, nothing ever happened. And then they like whipped open the door and had two buckets of ice water and just like dumped ice water on me and closed my door. So like all my clothes are soaked and I'm like freezing cold. And my, <clears throat> my buddy who like screwed up initially was in the cell next to me. And he was like whispering through the cell, like, dude, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I was like so mad. And I just laid there all night, like shivering, freezing cold while they like blast propaganda. <laughs> like they play like babies crying. And like, I remember at one point they played, <laughs> somebody was just saying access denied, access denied for like three hours. <laughs> it like drove me nuts, dude. Like they were really wearing me down. But yeah, I don't know how much I can like talk about that because it's all classified, but you can YouTube and Google all this stuff. So I don't care. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was really, it was a really like great training. It's like one of those things that like I say I'd love to do it again, but like I probably would not want to do it again. But that training was legit. That's the best training I've ever received. And um, the Air Force like does a really good job with it. So I had a blast doing that for sure. And once you got through that and uh, picked up E4, you were qualified to go to aeromedical technician? Yep. So then I went to, um, I think, when was that? I was still like waiting for class dates for the aeromedical evacuation technician training. It's like a two-month block. So I out-processed from the base, did all that stuff. And then I went to Wright-Patterson Wright -Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. And the Air Force School of Aerospace Medicine is there. And the first month was called air medical evacuation technician slash flight nurse training. So it's nurses and techs. And you basically just learn how the air medical evacuation system works, like nuts to bolts, like how uh, somebody gets injured or wounded downrange. They get picked up by an AE crew and they bring them to usually like a bigger uh, hospital at the time, like Bagram. And then Qatar was another one. And then from Qatar, they go to Germany. And then from Germany, they go to DC. So it's just like explaining how the whole system works and then teaching you like patient specific stuff about the stresses of flight and how um, you have more unique patients and unique patient situations when you are moving patients on an aircraft. Like you have litter patients and you got to put them in stanchions and um, you got to learn the oxygen and electrical systems of the aircraft and learn the specific um, medical equipment that you'll be using during air medical evacuation flights. And then um, the second phase of training, damn, my dog is just stealing the show. <laughs> the second phase of training was called air medical evacuation initial qualification. And they have like full sized um, C-130 and C-17. And you basically just do like, they're called statics, like a training mission where the plane doesn't have wings. It's not going to take off. So, but you like learn how to configure the aircraft, how to load patients. And then you deal with like medical scenarios, emergency medical scenarios, fires, rapid decompressions. You learn the aircraft. So that block was more specific towards like, you're going to have enlisted aircrew wings. You need to know at least the basics of how to, how to function on an aircraft, how to respond to an emergency, how to open the doors, close the doors, how to, you know, set up seats, set up stanchions, how to, plug in oxygen electrical and just how the different aircraft works and the aircraft systems. Um, and then you have a check ride where you get evaluated and you're getting evaluated on um, equipment proficiency. So you sit in a room with like a mannequin and a bunch of different medical equipment and you go through different scenarios and you have to discuss how the equipment works, what's the warnings and cautions, you know, what, what the power is, blah, blah, blah. Like you learn, 
you have to basically recite to an evaluator like that you know how to operate the equipment safely and how to respond to an emergency using the medical equipment. So that was like actually pretty stressful just because it was all like really new information. Like I had the baseline of being a medical technician, but in reality, like I didn't have a lot of patient care experience because I was working in a clinic. Everybody's routine. You know what I mean? There's no like real traumas or emergencies in a clinic, but there were other, there were other medical technicians who had like worked in like bigger hospitals. They'd worked in the ER or they were already paramedics or whatever it was. And they had way more like hands-on patient care experience. So you have all that stuff on top of learning all the aircraft. And that was, yeah, super stressful. You have like a checklist that you need to learn. And I remember like waking up reciting the checklist. Like I was super stressed. But it was fun still, like your TDY, you live in a hotel for two months and like people have rental cars or they have their own car, whatever. And, you know, we'd go out and have fun. And it was also during COVID. So sitting in eight hours of lectures, like with a mask on, just like sucked. But um, yeah, we did the altitude chamber. Um, You basically get all your baseline qualifications to be an air crew member. So that was May, June, July of twenty. And then ironically, I got stationed at Travis Air Force Base in California where I did my clinicals. So it was like I'd already been there. Yeah. And then I reported for at the 60th Air Medical Evacuation Squadron at Travis in August of 20. And then you have to go through like a whole nother requalification. Like they have to verify, like just because you pass the schoolhouse doesn't mean that you like know how to do your job at all, as I'm sure you know, like just because you have... Yeah. Just because you went through basic training in your MOS school doesn't mean that you know how to do your MOS, right? Like you need to do on-the-job training um, and you have an instructor again and you do training missions and then you do like a real-world mission. And like the when I say a real-world mission, it's like still very routine. So like stateside, the Air Force moves patients from Andrews Air Force Base, which is like in D.C. area. And basically, these are people that are coming from downrange or coming from overseas, wherever, and they need to get back to their duty station or their home or record or wherever. And you essentially transport them. And um, then we also had a mission that was, I did a lot, which I really liked. We would go to Hawaii, Hawaii, Guam, Japan, and then back. And same thing. It's just moving patients, but from the Pacific AOR. So yeah, did a couple of those. And I was still in training. I haven't even... I hadn't even passed. And my senior enlisted leader was like, hey, you're deploying in May of 21. And I was like, oh, wait, like, hell yeah. Because that was like my overall goal in joining the military was like, I knew I wasn't going to be like a door kicker or like, you know, I wasn't going to be in a combat arms job. I knew who I was, right? But I wanted to feel like I contributed to like the overall mission. Like I wanted to like go to the Middle East. I wanted to like see, you know what I mean? Like I grew up, calling my cousins in Iraq and Afghanistan. I remember like all my family being around the phone and like talking to them and they're in, you know, Bagram or Baghdad or wherever they were at. And just thinking like, man, that's like really cool that they're over there doing that. But the opportunity to deploy as like a regular medic, medical technician was like slim to none, especially the base that I was at. The readiness guy was like, you will never deploy. If you want to deploy, you need to go do air medical evacuation or other jobs in the air force. And yeah, so I finished up like my training and then I was like an operational flyer, still very much so learning my job, but I knew I had a deployment coming up. So I was like, damn, I need to have my shit squared away. But at the time, obviously 2021, 
the retrograde in Afghanistan had like already way, way, way begun. Like all the fobs were shut down. Bagram was still operational. So I definitely went into that deployment thinking like there isn't a war anymore. Like nothing crazy is happening. So like this is still just going to be a cool opportunity. And air crew deployments are only four months. So it was, it ended up being closer to five just because of delays and whatever. But so I was there, I went to Al Yadid Air Base in Qatar from May of May of 21. And then I left at the beginning of October of 21. Am I going too fast, talking too much? I don't know. No, you're fine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you have any other questions? <laughs> no, just, uh, I guess. So when, when the Air Force deploys, do you all just take the aircraft that you're depl- that you're going to be using on deployment? Do you just take that aircraft from stateside to wherever it is they are deployed to? So that's most the aircraft that you operate out of. Yeah. So most most like aircrew. So like my job was like the redheaded stepchild of aircrew because we weren't real aircrew. Real aircrew guys are like pilots, loadmasters, boom operators, the dudes that like they're enlisted aviators. They're like a one alpha AFSC. So like we always got kind of like shit on because we were medics. Like people would come up to me on a jet and be like, are you the load? And I'd be like, no. And they were like, okay. We were like (laughs) nobody to them. So like, yes, air crew does do that. They take their jet to their deployment. There's also, but since we weren't, I don't want to like discredit my job and say we weren't real air crew, but people who are in the Air Force know, like air medical evacuation are medics and nurses with wings. You know what I mean? Like we're like a little different. So we do things differently. And so we ended up taking the rotator. Like we flew commercial, commercial from California to uh, Baltimore and then took the rotator from Baltimore to Germany and then Germany to Qatar. When you call it the rotator, what are you referring to exactly? The rotator is like, it's like a commercial aircraft, but it's like specifically dedicated to military people deploying and coming back from deployment. So it's like, it's just like a commercial jet, but it's strictly dedicated. I think it's called, there's like a couple companies, but Atlas, I think was the one I flew on, but they're essentially responsible for like Norfolk, Virginia and Baltimore, taking people to Germany, to the Middle East or from Germany back to the States. Yeah. We called it the rotator because it's like a cyclical weekly rotating flight that happens and it's strictly for military and dependents etc but yeah and um, the air force does deployments like pretty like differently like i know in like the army and the marines like a whole unit will deploy kind of thing like a whole uh i know the army is usually like i think it could be up to a brigade sometimes it's like a battalion but it could be up to a brigade or maybe even a regiment uh marines typically will deploy i mean we could deploy as a regimental combat team right but most often it's really just a, it's a battalion size unit. I guess what, I think what y'all will call a squadron. Right. So I yeah. think that's about the same size. Yeah. Uh, so about a battalion plus whatever augments the battalion needs for the particular mission. So. Yeah. My job in particular, I think it's, I mean, it's like this for everybody in the Air Force, but it's like on an individual basis. So you have like a deployment rotation or a, I can't remember what it was called, deployment band, where basically it's like you're eligible to be selected for deployment from this time to this time. And then for air medical evacuation, because there are there's a deployed unit in Germany, Africa, Kuwait, and Qatar at the time. So those slots need to be filled. And there's only four active duty air medical evacuation squadrons. There, there's like 20 
eight twenty nine guard and reserve. So the guard and reserve does the majority of the deployment rotations um, as far as filling slots. And that changed right before I got out as well. But basically like, yeah, it's like an individual basis. Um, and our senior enlisted leader kind of based it off of, he had like a flow chart basically of like when you arrived, what your last deployment was or whatever. And he based it off of that. But typically the best way to like get aeromedical evacuation technicians, or I'll just call them AETs from now on, to get AETs and flight nurses to um, get that experience, like they try to send them out the door pretty quick just because you're really going to learn your job when you're deployed because there's no additional duties. You're not home. You know what I mean? You're just deployed. You're just there to fly um, and you fly more frequently. So you get more reps and you fly on different aircraft and you do different mission sets and that kind of thing. So like I said, yeah, I was like still in training and they were like, you're deploying in four months, five months, whatever it was. But yeah. Was it like a, uh, we need to, we need more numbers. We need to fill slots to go on this deployment. Or is it just that you were close enough to the end of your training cycle? Like he can learn the rest of his job on deployment. Basically. Yeah. Like I, I had finished mission qualification. Uh, hang on one sec. Sorry, dude. (laughs) My dog, uh, you're fun. My dog really is spoiled and like knows, (laughs) knows how to like get attention and all that, but he wanted to go out. He was yelling at me. No, I get that. I love, I love dogs. Yeah, he's the homie. He's a good dude. What was I going to say? But yeah, it's basically like typically, at least in my experience with my job, it was like you finish mission qualification and then you're kind of like first up to deploy because they want you to get real world experience. Because when you're stateside, you might fly like an operational mission, like with real patients once every couple months. And then other than that, you're doing training missions like with mannequins. Still, okay, you have a bunch of training requirements that you have to keep current on, but the best way to get that experience is to deploy because you're that's all you're there to do. Um, yeah, what else you got? I can't think that well. <laughs> no, you're good. So, when y'all got to, yeah, you said Aladid, right? In Qatar, Aladid in Qatar, yeah, there's gonna yeah. be it's like. The whole not a deployment thing. I like don't tell people proudly like I deployed to Qatar. It's <laughs> it's pretty chill. There's a pool. There's a Dairy Queen. There's a mall. You know what I mean? Like LED Qatar is like pretty bougie. You know, I had a nice dorm with Wi-Fi and AC. Like I definitely was not roughing it, but I can't <laughs> I can't control where and when I deploy. So that's what I got. And obviously at the time, Iraq and Afghanistan in 2021 was very you know low not low threat but like just very drawn down and the retrograde was like really in place so everything was like pretty quiet yeah those first couple months like i was just like getting to know the dudes that i was living with the dudes that i was on a crew with my crew was five there was five of us we were all dudes so they called us sausage party good group of dudes i'm still friends with really good friends with a couple of them for sure but it was like pretty relaxed. But I remember my first, like my first mission, because you basically, you get there, you in process, you get your weapons, you do all that stuff. And then you just are on a cycle the entire time where you're in crew rest, which is 12 hours. And then you're in an alert posture for 48 hours. It's called Bravo alert. So you basically just sit there and wait for a mission to drop. It could be a routine one. It could be ISS, which is in system select, I think. But like if somebody gets injured and there's already an aircraft in the air, 
they'll like divert the aircraft to come pick up an air medical evacuation crew. They'll throw all their shit on the plane, fly there and get the patient. So those are kind of more exciting because it's like, you don't know, a lot of times you don't know what kind of patients you're getting get or how many or that whole thing. And then um, there were like weekly routine missions where basically Qatar was the hub. So if there was patients in Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, wherever, and they had to be picked up. It would usually be Qatar that would go do it because <clears throat> we had like a, the bigger squadron. We had five crews. There's always a crew. There's always minimum one crew like ready to be alerted and launch. So yeah, my first, like my first mission was to Bagram and it was like in the middle of the night and I was like, oh shit, like this is so real. Like finally get to like go to Afghanistan. You know what I mean? And um so that was like at the end of May. It was like one of the last AE missions out of Bagram because there was nobody there. Yeah. And that was crazy. Like we landed there and it was like a ghost town. I'd seen all these pictures and videos and heard all these stories about how crazy it was. But this was May of 2021. Like there was no jets on, there was no jets on the flight line. There was no vehicles. There was no people. There was one dude that recovered us. He was like, what's up? I'm here to help with whatever you guys need. He was like in like a t-shirt and shorts. Like he was just like, I don't even know if he was in the Air Force. And we had like one patient. We had one mental health patient. A lot of, lot of patients on deployment are um, <clears throat> like, it's, I really didn't have like a whole lot of like battle injured or like, you know, wounded patients. It was a lot of, um, you know, people are deployed. They miss home. They have a you know, they break up with their girlfriend or their boyfriend or they're having marital problems or whatever it is. And they're stressed out, they're depressed, suicidal, whatever it could be. So a lot of, a lot of deployment was like, ironically, like injuries from like an accident, you know, accidentally uh, negligent discharge or like uh, a sports accident, like working out or something like that, or a lot of mental health. So we had... <laughs> A lot of that going on like it felt it was very routine um, but it was still cool to like be going to like iraq afghanistan and all these different places um but you're just like you know you're on the flight line you pick up patients and then you leave and then i think in like june the end of june beginning of july is when i started hearing like rumblings about the non-combatant evacuation they kept talking about the neo and i didn't even know what a neo was i had to look it up but they were basically saying like they didn't know when, like what the timeline was, but basically there was going to be a non-combatant evacuation operation. We were going to be pulling people out of Afghanistan. And like they didn't know if we were going to be involved because we're like, it's five people. And sometimes we can be augmented by a CCAT team, which is critical care air transport team. And that's like doctors, respiratory therapists and nurses. So we're like five to eight to 10 people. We have a bunch of equipment, like we have a bunch of stuff. And for the sake of like aviation operations, like having a bunch of extra people and a bunch of extra weight and people and like people that need extra time to set up the aircraft isn't like the most optimal when you're trying to rapidly, you know, go in and out, in and out, in and out, move people, come back. So we didn't initially know if we were going to be like even involved at all. And then, um, when did all that start? Like the 14th or the 15th of August? Like somewhere around there? I know 10th Mountain and some national 10th Mountain some National Guard guys were at were in Kabul at HKIA. Well, between HKIA and the embassy. I know first battalion, eighth Marines, the Marines that were on the Mew that yeah. were going there, the Alpha Company, they showed up to HKIA 
on the 12th. Yeah, that sounds about and right. And they were trying to set things up. And then when the Taliban got there on the 15th, that's when everything started to get bad. Right, right, right. So, like, we were, like, itching to go. It's a weird um, – I know you can probably relate to this where it's, like, you don't want people to get hurt. Like, you don't want bad stuff to happen. But, like, you want to, like, do your job. You know what I mean? Like, you want to do your job at the highest level. Like, you want real world, real stakes, real pressure. You have to make real decisions. That's what you're there to do. And I think that goes for, like, the majority of people in the military. It's, like, uh, a weird kind of catch-22 where it's, like, obviously, I don't want Americans to get hurt or killed. But I want I want to do my job. Like, I want to be able to beat, you know what I mean? I want to make a difference. I want to help people. I want to, you know what I mean? So we were, like, really anxious because we still didn't know like if we were even going to be going because the initial rumblings were like, Oh, we don't know if we're going to need you guys. And then obviously we started seeing the stuff on the news and Qatar was like the main hub for, you know, you pull people out and you, a lot of them were being brought to Qatar. And I don't remember when it was, but I was at the squadron, like the dorms that I lived in were like across the base. And then the squadron was on the other side of the base. And I was at the squadron doing something. And um, my boss and my crew, uh, NCOIC, they were like homies from Delaware. They were in the Delaware Guard and they're still like really good buddies of mine. They were like, hey, um, somebody at the maintenance hangar called and said they need some medical people. Do you want to roll with me? So Flo and Keith went and they brought like whatever like a blood pressure cuff <laughs> like they brought like nothing because they thought it was like somebody fell or you know what i mean like whatever and then keith my buddy called me and was like bernie i need i need a trauma bag ob bag i need all this stuff he gave me this huge list ivs all this stuff and i was like what so like <laughs> i grabbed one of the logistics guys and we grabbed a truck and we drove to this hangar uh had all these medical supplies and there was like just thousands Maybe not thousands, but close to, at the time, it was growing, close to a thousand refugees. That was a weird thing. We couldn't call them refugees. They kept saying, don't call them refugees. They're evacuees. I don't know why for the sake of terminology, but they were like, they're evacuees. But we got to this hangar and it was all these people, obviously, that had been coming from HKIA. And it's, you know, women, kids, men, old men, and they're all different kinds of jacked up like they're they don't have shoes so their feet are destroyed or you know they've been beat by the taliban starving dehydrated shot with rubber bullets tear gas whatever it is right like obviously that situation was pretty chaotic right so we essentially just kind of stood up like a makeshift like triage <clears throat> and there's no translator to be found right and you know, I have like women handing handing me like really sick kids and babies and I don't speak the same language. I don't know what's wrong with them. I can't I can't assess them like I normally would because a lot of times the most helpful thing is someone who knows them, someone who knows their medical history, knows what happened to them, can explain to me what I should be looking for, that kind of thing. So we were just doing like rapid assessments on these people and getting vitals and trying to have like some type of like order and organization. And like people just kept coming in and coming in and like it was anything from they had surgery and it was infected to like they had wounds, like battle wounds, like from bullets, rubber bullets, tear gas, whatever. A lot of um, 
And then the other side of that coin was I had never like seen people from a third world country, people that don't have access to medical care. And they have like really gnarly, like chronic illness and skin conditions and stuff like that, that I had never seen before. So it was pretty chaotic. And there was only like four or five of us at the time. Cause it was like very like last minute, like the air force, the LUD like didn't know what to do with all of them. So they were throwing them in hangars and it's like, it's a hundred degrees in the hangar. We don't have cots. We don't have enough water. And it's like, if you pull out food or water, it was like the walking dead, dude. Like they would swarm you. So it was gnarly. And that was like, my memory is kind of fuzzy, but that was like around the 15th, 16th, 17th timeframe. And then we like, after that happened, it became pretty clear that like, hey, you're going to want, because these guys, hats off and respect to crew chiefs, pilots, and loadmasters, like the C-17 and C-130 guys who are bringing people back and forth, but they're not medically trained and they don't have medical supplies and these people are jacked up like they need. So I think it became clear quick from like a strategic perspective of you need to have medics, you need to have medical technicians, nurses, doctors, whoever to treat these people in flight on the way because they're bringing in people who are like really sick and really screwed up and they hadn't received any medical attention until after waiting at HKIA for days and then they get on the flight line for hours and then they're on the jet and they're sitting on the floor. You know what I mean? Like it was, they went, those people were really going through it and so it became clear quick that it was like, you guys need to have AE on board or um, individual medics, whoever, or just any kind of medical support to like give people food and water and IVs and whatever. And um, yeah, so that was whatever. Yeah. So y'all had no idea any of that was going down until all of a sudden there's a bunch of refugees or evacuees sitting yeah. in a hangar and like, Hey, bring on the medical supplies on base pretty much. Like we knew, we knew it was, coming like we knew that they were moving people and we knew they were coming to qatar but like it was on the complete other side of the base and we're like in crew rest or on alert and we're still flying other missions like we're still flying to saudi jordan kuwait uae all those other places like we have missions every day and we we're going to so it's like you're kind of like you know what's going on and obviously it's like everyone's main focus was like when are we going to go when are we going to get to do something but obviously that situation in hkia was like pretty chaotic and fluid where like they're just trying to get people organized, like establish security. You know what I mean? Like they're trying to clear the flight line. They're trying to establish air traffic controllers. You know what I mean? Like they're trying to like get that airfield fully operational to start doing the non-combatant evacuation. Those first few crews that flew in, there was just tens of thousands of people on the flight line. Like there was no order. There was no discipline. You're not you can't pat people down. There's no anti-hijacking. Like you're just, you open the ramp and they got swarmed. And I talked to a few of those crews and they were just like, everybody wants to be, everybody wants to be there and wants to be helping and wants to do something. But no one has ever trained. No one had ever trained for that. No one ever, I never did a training mission or a training scenario that was like, you have 300 people. You know what I mean? You know, it's like you have 300 people swarm in the aircraft. Like, what are you going to do? Like no one had ever, I don't think anybody was really prepared for that. And Intel is kind of funny because Intel, we would do our Intel briefs before we fly and Intel would be like, whatever you see on the news, that's what we have. It's pretty chaotic down there. Then the first AE crew, they went down there like 
the 17th or 18th. It's actually a cool story about a, I don't remember which Marine general it was who went down there, but they got on the jet and him and like his whole posse was there. And he had like, like an office on the jet. He had like a little like cubicle and had like a carpet and a table and a desk and like Wi-Fi and phones and all this stuff. Cause this dude is like talking to the president, like saying like, I'm, you know, going down there, boots on the ground. And uh, so when they, when they flew into HKIA, everybody's like throwing battle rattle on and like checking their weapons and doing all this stuff. And this general who I don't know who it was just threw on, took off his, uh, took off his top and threw on like a red Marine Corps hoodie and just walked off the jet, like nothing. And they said that they were all just like, who is, like, who is this general? Just like the most Marine shit ever. Just like, I don't need, I don't need a gun. I don't need a vest. Just threw on a hoodie and hopped off the jet. And then, yeah. Am I talking about nonsense? No, you're good. Yeah. It's, it's the part that was surprising to me is that y'all had, I mean, y'all expected it to a point. Y'all knew it was coming more or less, but at the same time, it was still just like, dropped in y'all's laps like hey now you're gonna take care of these thousands of people with without proper facilities without proper uh knowledge of previous medical conditions if they have any of course there's really no way to verify any of that because like you said it's such a chaotic situation trying to filter them through the airport it's just people are getting separated from their families people are just people are getting shot by or beaten by the taliban a lot of times uh getting shot with rubber bullets by marines who are trying to maintain some kind of order but they're and the troops on the ground, I don't know if you know anything about that. Troops on the ground were so restricted in what they couldn't couldn't do. Yeah. I um I I follow that dude, um, Tyler Vargas Andrews. Is that his name? I listen to his podcast on the Sean Ryan show and hearing that whole story, I like I had heard because we had we had people on the ground at HKIA. They're called air medical evacuation liaison teams. And they're basically there to like coordinate AE missions. Once they like, once they knew there was a need, they were there like establishing comms and getting everything in order to start generating patient movement flights, patient movement requests to get people out. This is like so confusing to talk about just because normally our job is when you fly an AE mission, your only responsibility is your patients, patients and attendants, like their battle buddy, whoever it is. And then the load masters, and crew chiefs are responsible for packs or passengers. That obviously went out the window because the passengers, the refugees, evacuees are like, just because they're not manifested as patients, it doesn't mean that they don't have a bunch of medical needs, urgent medical needs. So like, and I'm obviously just speaking from like the perspective, I can't speak to pilots, crew chiefs, and loadmasters other than like secondary stuff, like word of mouth and like talking to them at the time or after, but um, they might've had more of a heads up because they play a much more significant role. They're operating the aircraft. You know what I mean? Like, so they were like, nope, nobody on the base. They knew it was coming. They had heard about it, but like, we clearly weren't prepared enough because, and I don't like, that's not like a placing blame or anything, but like, you got fit. You just moved, you moved 20,000 people in two days. Where are you going to put them? What are you going to feed them? What are you, you know what I mean? Like facilities and resources and logistics. And there's so much that goes into that. And it was really like a free for all because 
everybody's trying their hardest to get everything set up and get it put in place. And it was a pretty hasty timeline, obviously, but everybody put all that stuff aside as far as like what my, what my job is or like what I'm here to do. Like technically I was there to fly air medical evacuation missions. I wasn't there to like be a ground medic working in a triage center, but like, I'm not going to say that's not my job. I'm medical personnel. I'm trained. I can help with whatever. So that was like a really cool, um, my biggest like takeaway from all of that was when shit gets real and like stuff needs to happen, you need to make it happen. Nobody is worried about rank and structure and discipline and like normal ways of communicating fucking emails or phone calls or whatever. Like it was just legit. Get there and do what you can. I don't care if it's not your job. Get there and do something. Set up beds move pallets, do whatever you have to do. And Qatar was like, Qatar was nuts. Those, And Qatar was nuts even after, even in September and October, still trying to get these people out. And you know what I mean? But sorry, I like haven't thought about all this stuff in a while. So I'm like trying to rack my brain. But any questions? <laughs> yeah. I mean, when the obvious need came about that like hey we need air evacuation technicians on these aircraft that are flying in HK and bring these people out it's like when when did that start to happen and how quickly did i'm assuming you eventually got on those flights as well going yeah, in and out of HK yeah so i only flew i flew with refugees like four or five times i only flew in HK one time for the record other people flew in much more but you can't really control when and where right you just do what you're told but um like i said we had like heard the rumblings and all that stuff and the air force <laughs> the military is kind of slow on the uptake when it comes to this kind of stuff right so like the air force spun up a bunch of so there was already people deployed to qatar and kuwait and germany and crews in germany fly to africa and they fly to the middle east and then the crews in kuwait and qatar do um so there's like inter-theater movements, which is like movements within the Middle East. And then there's intra-theater. I hope I'm not screwing that up, but that's like Middle East to Germany. So like Kuwait and Qatar already had probably eight or 10 crews already there. And the Air Force spun up another 100 to 200 air medical evacuation technicians and flight nurses and like hastily flew them to Germany. And they came up with this thing. It was called PMAP. Pass it was like passenger medical auxiliary or personnel, something like that. But it was basically like they would send two techs or a tech and a nurse with like a backpack and hydration stuff and food and medical supplies and whatever. Because a lot of times you couldn't get a whole crew on a jet for a refugee movement because there's a plane, there's multiple planes landing every single hour. So you're not going to be, there's not enough humans. So I had buddies that did the PMAP thing and they were just by themselves with three, four, 500 refugees with a backpack of medical support. It's like, dude, like I'm talking like liquid IV, one bag, one bag of IV, two or three bags of IV fluids, oxygen tubing, a couple oxygen masks, like not enough shit. And the Air Force was like sending people that way. And we had augments from the Army and the Navy as well. But once, you know how people get in the military where it's just like, we were pissed because we were like, dude, we're already here. Like, we've been here all summer. We've been waiting for this shit to happen. We're, we're going to do it. We're going to be the ones to do it. 
we want to get in there and help in whatever way we can. And like now you're sending hundreds of other people from the States at the last minute. Like some of those, some of those people didn't arrive until like the 25th, 26th, 27th. And then we pulled out on what, the 30th or the 31st? It was over. So we got hit up on like the 20th or the 21st, I think, to go to Hikaya. And cool story about the Marines. So I have like an insane amount of respect for 1A and 2-1 and all the guys over there, Army, Marines, Navy, International Forces, like those dudes, they're at Hikaya. It's a shit show situation. <clears throat> and we're like the Air Force. In, like we get to fly back. You know what I mean? Like we get to fly back to Qatar every time and like sleep in our bed. And like, you know what I mean? Go to the gym after while all this shit's happening. So like we wanted to help them out whatever way we could. And my buddy Keith was in contact with um, that dude Killzone on Instagram, Major Thomas Schumann. He like wrote a book called Always Faithful. He was like hitting him up on Instagram because obviously he was in the Marines and he knew like people on the ground. And he was like, what do the boys want? Like, what do they need? And it's fucking Marines. Like they need dip, cigarettes and energy drinks. So we had a bunch of people Venmo us, a bunch of people from like all over the base and people back in the States Venmoed us and me and Keith, my buddy, and a couple other people filled like duffel bags with like smokes, dip and cases of energy drinks. And we filled these like rolling duffel bags because we knew that we were going to Hikaya and he posted about it and said it was like the greatest PX run in history. Because <laughs> we like... Uh, I think it was a captain from either 1-8 or 2-1. I can't remember. But we like met, he like, Keith like brought him the stuff and like, just like Santa Claus, like dirty Santa, just like, here's all this dip and smokes and energy drinks. <laughs> and uh, they were like stoked because they're hurting. They're over there like eating MREs and probably no water and like scrapping. You know what I mean? And like, we just wanted to hook them up because it's like, they have the hardest job. They're there on the ground for those two or three weeks or whatever it was. But so we flew there. Um, we were supposed to get nine patients, manifested patients. Um, I think they were like Afghan army or Afghan special operations dudes that I don't know if it was like a friendly fire thing or like some type of incident, but they basically got like fragged and flashed and shot. I don't remember the whole situation. Like, don't quote me on that, but they were, they were fucked up. They had battle injuries. So we were supposed to move them and then like a couple other miscellaneous. But obviously we knew just because we're going there to get nine patients doesn't mean that they're not going to fill the aircraft with refugees. If a plane lands on the ground there, you're putting refugees on it. So we flew to Kuwait and got stuck on the ground for like hours and hours and hours, a bunch of pallets, that whole thing. And then we were going to Hikaya. So it was my crew and then a CCAT team. Because you basically just wanted to have as much medical supplies and medical people as possible to kind of be there for whatever happens. And so we landed in Hikaya. And the first thing that happened was this like <laughs> super fat colonel <laughs> came on the jet. And he saw uh, the crew was like going to pick up patients. They were going to like meet the, um, the AELTs to like get paperwork get rapport on the patients and then like figure out a way to transport the patients to the aircraft. So I stayed on the aircraft to maintain security and just make sure everything was set up. The litter stanches were good. Our, our oxygen electricals all hooked up. Supplies are readily available. We have stuff like laid out just like waiting. 
And this colonel came on the jet and he was like, God fucking damn it. Is this a fucking AE bird? And I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> and he was like, God damn, what the fuck? Because we have like a bunch of stuff. Can I curse? Should I not be cursing? No, you're good. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm just trying to quote this colonel. But um, because we have like all these stanchions, all these bags, all these litters, and it takes up like a pretty good portion of the front of the aircraft. And obviously he's trying to pack this jet with refugees. So he was like pissed because he thought it was like a empty jet. But it's like, nope, there's like 10 medical people and a bunch of shit. So Keith, my buddy, and uh, my buddy Stoopy, the, one of the nurses, they basically figured out a way to get a vehicle to load patients and bring them to the aircraft. And normally loading patients is like a very methodical routine. There's like a checklist. There's a bunch of stuff you do. And it's like, you don't load patients until like everybody's on the same page. Everybody's ready. There's like a bunch of commands that need to happen. But like, as they were bringing patients, this huge crowd of refugees came to our jet. And at this point, for the record, when I got to HKIA, they had that shit pretty squared away as far as the flight line goes. Like it was very orderly, very organized, very good lines of communication. And so we were just like waiting. So it's like, whatever, I think it ended up being like 305, something like that. So it's like Norwegians who are carrying these patients, like litter patients who have like X fixes and wound vacs and like bullet wounds. Like these dudes are like, you need to be careful with these dudes. Like they're hurt dropping them or like bumping one of their <laughs> medical devices. That's not an option. It's a very, you have to be really safe and really careful. But as they're carrying patients on, these refugees are coming on and, you know, there's two or three dudes on the ramp. Like you can't control a crowd like that. And none of the, and nobody speaks English. Like, you know, I'm not trying to like harp on that. Like, yeah, duh, obviously they don't, but it makes a significant difference when you cannot perfectly like clearly concisely communicate exactly what needs to happen when you don't speak the language and you're trying to communicate with your crew on headset as well while patients are coming on and refugees are coming on and um that first wave of refugees was like there's kids like walking on their hands because their legs are fucked or you know i can see burns i can see their bones like they're the first wave of people that came on was like fucked up and I'm like responsible for, I direct people to come to me with the litter patient. And then we rack the litter patient into the stanchion, but that's easier said than done when they don't speak the language, everybody's in a rush and people are swarming us because they know we're medical people. They know that we're medical people. So like they, um, they basically like, see, quiet, please. I'm on the, I'm on the phone. <laughs> so uh, they came on and we're like trying to load these patients and they're all like, I said the walking dead, I don't mean to sound insensitive, but like they swarm you because they know, they see the medical supplies, they they know what it is. And um, there's no trans, there's one translator for whatever, 300 people. So that's not effective, right? So we're trying to load patients and there's people coming on in wheelchairs, people coming on in crutches, people coming on bleeding from their face. And you're like, you're spread so thin and you're so overwhelmed because you're like, oh, who do I, who do I go to first? There's only five, six, there's only like five or six of us on the jet at this time because 
Some guys are tied up treating one person with injuries. Some guys are still on the ground communicating with people, trying to coordinate moving more patients or whatever it is. So like we're all spread out. We're on comms, but we're all tied up doing different things. So that was pretty chaotic. And then what happened was all these patients, these litter patients that got loaded, they were on um, a type of litter that like isn't approved for flight. They're like collapsible. So if you put them in the stanchion and like turbulence happens or like just the aircraft is bumpy and noisy and loud. And especially you take off out of HKIA like this because it's a combat zone, right? So they we ended up having to build a bunch of new litters and moving these patients onto a new litter because the litters that they were on weren't approved for flight. So that was like a whole nother ordeal because now you have to move these like battle injured patients while there's people all around you, everybody's yelling at you and pulling on your uniform. And so it was like, uh, I'll never forget that day. It was so insanely stressful because yeah, like I said, you can't prepare for that. You can't train for that. And I had only heard stories and, you know, I had seen the news. I didn't know what it was like, but we had everything under control overall. Nobody got hurt. We didn't drop anybody. Like we did our job well. It was just a super chaotic and fluid situation where you're just, you just don't know where to start. Like you don't know who to go to, who's priority. You're like rapidly assessing and triaging patients and trying to figure out like what takes precedence. But I felt like we did pretty good of just kind of focusing on doing things one at a time, getting these patients, these litter patients secured, checking all their equipment, making sure they're all set to go because they're about to be laying in a litter for like a three, four hour flight. But then also you have 300 people sitting on the ground. Normally you have free range. You can walk around the aircraft, move in between patients, do whatever. But we have all the seats down. And like typically the sidewall seats on the aircraft were for like the sick, elderly or pregnant or like really injured people would get priority to get a seat. And then the rest of them would just sit on the floor. And at the time, one of the biggest like issues that we were having, this is kind of weird but like it's not when you think about it like these people a lot of them don't know how to use a toilet and then a lot of them we basically had lined the all the it had become like a such a huge issue where they were like destroying the bathrooms because there's 300 people that need to use the bathroom and they this piss and shit on the walls and there so they're like basically the labs and the bathrooms were being like knocked out of commission because they were like being used and abused that's nobody's fault. That's just, it was a shitty situation. There's just no way around that. But it made it really hard to turn the aircraft over to go fly again because the aircraft needed to be serviced thoroughly. The labs were destroyed. There's piss and shit and blood all over the floor. So at the time we had like big, huge industrial rolls of trash bags that we like lined the floor with like a tarp basically as like a catch-all because it was just like, what else are you going to do? We had all these people packed on the floor and like, we don't even have seats. We're like securing ourselves to litters with little monkey tails or like clips or whatever, or a litter strap or whatever we can just to like secure ourselves and trying to take off. We were on the ground in HKIA for a long time, sorting that out. That was like two or three hours on the ground of just like, there's one translator and like, he's not like an official translator. He's like a dude that says I can speak English. You know what I mean? But like, so it was really hard to communicate to a group of 300 people who are like severely in distress, trying to get them to sit down. And uh, so we were on the ground for a while trying to figure that whole thing out. There's like a million stories within that whole day. But when I think about it, 
it was cool to see the whole collaboration of like partner forces, Air Force and Army, like everybody just trying to get one jet off the ground. Like that was the mission overall from our perspective. So that was nuts. And then the flight was a disaster. Somebody had a seizure on the ramp the second we took off. So like there's 300 people on the ground. You can't walk back there. Like you're like climbing over people, stepping on people. We were like, I remember passing medical supplies to refugees and they would like throw it back to, cause we had one of our guys on the ramp to tend to that patient. And we're like throwing stuff to refugees and the refugees would throw it back and try to get it to that dude. So it was like chaos. Normally they're like, you have way more control of your space and like take care of people. Yeah. A bunch of people were just like sick and thrown up in the flight. They're sitting on the floor. It's super rough. And, uh, the other thing that was happening was we had fucking, we had cases of water like stacked to the ceiling in the galley. And the basis of human existence is food and water, obviously. And you can't treat all these, like you can't treat all these people. You can't assess 300 people. Like you just can't, but you can give people food and water. And, um, but it would turn into chaos. Like if you pulled out a case of water, everybody's reaching at you and pulling on your uniform. And so it get like really unruly. And there was a lot of like military age males who were like, obviously angry and scared and frustrated. And they felt like they, they felt like we weren't treating them well because we're like yelling at these people, like trying to communicate whatever way we can, trying to maintain some type of order. Cause we're not trying to get like overtaken by a crowd. You know what I mean? Like it's once that door closed on that jet is very tense trying to maintain that order. Um, because the load masters and the crew chiefs and, um, they're called Ravens. They're like security forces or MPs who have like specific training about aircraft security. And they go on specific flights just as like an extra security team, basically a couple extra shooters kind of thing. If worse comes to worse, right? Obviously. But, um, everyone is tied up doing something. So that whole flight was just like a constant push and pull of like, are we doing this? Are we not doing this? I remember at one point they were like, don't give them water. They're going to piss everywhere. And I was like, if we don't give them water, they're going to pass out and then we're going to have a whole nother shit show. Like, you know what I mean? So it's really stressful and it was awesome. It was a, like, I don't want to say awesome. Like it was fun, but I'm saying it like, it was really exciting and it was a really great test of like your critical thinking and using your training and like your ability to prioritize and execute and what needs to happen. That flight was a lot. <laughs> that was crazy. I never really i i uh, I'm not like embarrassed to say, but like i I went to HKI once, and I didn't leave the flight line. You know, like there was no reason for me to go to Abbey Gate or one of the gates. The hospital was the hospital at, at HKI. I think was like relatively close to the flight line, but I never I didn't go to the hospital, so I didn't know. But all the dudes that were on the ground in HKIA, like uh, that, the videos I've seen, the stories that I've heard and all that stuff, like it's just an un unreal task to give a group of people because obviously there's all these restrictions. Nobody knows who's calling the shots, maintaining that order and structure and any type of normal, like any type of like organization in that chaos was just like impossible. It was just like a never ending uphill battle. But what I will say is the level of order that they were able to get, 
where everybody was organized on the flight line, getting planes in and out and loading planes as fast as they could. Like, I don't know the total number of people that were moved. I've heard a bunch of different ones, but it was pretty insane to like see that in person for sure. Yeah. I don't know if you have questions about that. I talked a long time. No, you're good. I mean, you definitely like without going to the gates and everything, you saw a version of it because 300 plus people trying to swarm onto your aircraft. Once y'all landing, you're trying to get the patients on. And while you're doing that, all these people start showing up and they're trying to push their way onto the aircraft. Like, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what that's what happened at the gates. Yeah. So like every time they opened the gate, they were they were trying to get like 10 to 15 people through at a time. Yeah. But of course, as soon as they open the gate, everybody on that crowd wants to get into the gate. Right. So yeah, you definitely saw a version of that. And that was dang out. Probably the only thing, and I don't even know if this is true. The only thing that you might have not have experienced that the guys at the gates on, on the walls did was uh taking fire on a regular basis. Right. I was told a story pretty early on when I was doing interviews was that uh one of the units that was attached to one eight, my old unit, second LAR, they were they landed there on the 17th and they got a mission not too long after they landed to cross the tarmac and set up a defensive line on the southern end of the airport because the whole airport wasn't really secure yet. There wasn't really too many people on the south side. So they're going up there to set up a defensive line. And as they're crossing the tarmac, they start hearing whizzes and pops. Right. And then the ground around starts kicking up and they realize they're taking fire. And they found out later that it was uh, Vishka's uh, Soviet-made anti-aircraft machine guns. Yeah. And the story that they were told is that those were set up in the hotels outside the airport and they were trying to shoot at the aircraft. Damn. Yeah, so... I heard the whole time we were on the ground in HKI, there was gunshots like pretty regularly. And um, one of the things that I was pretty like upset about was how like the army and Marines like basically couldn't, they would tell we're taking fire or we're shooting at people or we're shooting back at people or whatever it was. And like the official statement of like the government was like, you were never under attack or you were never like engaged. And you know what I mean? Like I've heard all these stories about how they couldn't claim that they were like taking fire. They couldn't claim that. So there's like, I think Tyler, Tyler talked about that on the podcast, but there's dudes with bullet wounds. Like there's dudes that got shot (laughs) and like, but the overall message from the government was that they weren't taking fire. But like, it was the, the day that I was there, it was the fucking wild west. (laughs) Like there was gunshots a lot. And I'm trying to think of, yeah. Um, I'd heard stories. I wasn't there, but yeah, like I, there's a lot of shit that happened there that a, most people don't care about. Most people have forgotten about this and B stuff that like higher ups in the government kind of like deny happened. Like I remember that dude who said, I think it was like when it was before or after Tyler spoke in Congress but he was just saying, like, he was like, chaos? Like, I didn't see that. Not from my perch. I was just like, bro, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Yeah. yeah but how long was that flight from, uh, how long was that flight? One, two, HKI, and then back from HKI to Qatar? I think it was like three and a half, four hours, something like that. And the um, whole time you're just trying to keep the people there, like. Yeah, like, normally like, you just, oh. like. When you're on a flight, like you just check on your patients every 30 minutes to an hour, make sure they have food, water. If they, if anybody needs anything, you like help. 
and it's like very straightforward. You get assigned a certain number of patients, you chart on them, you give them their meds, whatever they need. And it's like very routine and orderly. But in this situation, it was just kind of like wherever, whenever you were needed, you would try to help people as best you could. It sucked. There's a lot of kids. There's a lot of like young kids and like teenagers who were like jacked up and, uh, there's just like only so much you can do. There's so many of them. They all have a wide variety of injuries and illnesses and whatever's going on. And um, there's only, you know, eight or 10 of us that are like medical people and um, people flag you down and you don't know what they need because you don't speak the same language. Then you got to find the translator. The translator is tied up with some other shit show of a situation. So it was like a huge test of learning how to communicate and how to kind of figure out what was going on. My memory is like not the best with that, but I just like, yeah, that whole flight we just spent crawling over people. Somebody would raise their hand and they're all the way in the back of the jet and you have to crawl over people and step on people and hold on to the sidewall and try to like get to one person and figure out what they need. And then it's like, well, they need this medication or a bandage or whatever it is. And that's all the way on the other side of the aircraft. And you got to walk through to see if people again, and the patients, the litter, the litter patients that we had were sick. Like they were hurt. So like you spent the whole time just like, who are, who are you? What do you need? Where are you at? What, when do you need it? Like just, and people on headset are like asking for help and I need this and I need that. I need you to help me with this. And it was like task overload for sure. Just trying to figure out what could I do to help. But then we landed in Qatar and I think we ended up declaring an emergency because of that pregnant woman that had a seizure. So when you declare an IFE, like on an aircraft in the Air Force, it's like police, fire, medical, everybody shows up to the jet. So then the second we drop the ramp, 40 more people come on the plane. And we still have to like move these litter patients off the aircraft into the bus uh, it's called an ambus, but it's like a bus that has litter stanchions and you got to let, you're carrying a person. It's not a, it's, you have to be careful and safe and move correctly and like need to have clear lines of communication. People need to be out of your way. And we're trying to like part the sea of people like, yo, we need to move these people onto this bus. And then meanwhile, we have police and fire and whoever else, where's this, where's this patient at that had the seizure and like trying to. They're trying to like tend to your patients or they're trying to tend to other people and they're like standing in your way. It eventually got to a point that I, I was just like straight up barking at people like move, move. And then we would carry the patient, take one patient off at a time. So I think we had like three or four like heart, like litter patients and you need like four people to move them usually because the more the merrier, like the more people you have, the less weight you're carrying, the safer you can move a person. But I think me and my buddy Jed, just two person carried all those litter patients off to throw them on the bus as soon as possible, just to at least take care of one portion of that mission. One portion of that mission is just getting those litter patients to the next level of care and doing handoff. But um, that was just like a nightmare. And it's hot as balls. It was nighttime. It was like seven or eight, but it's still like a hundred 110 degrees on the flight line. So when you land there and you're sitting on the ground, then people start passing out and people start throwing up and people start, you know what I mean? So it just like never ended. And then when all said and done, you still got to get five, six buses out to the flight line and get these people on. And then I remember when we finally had everyone off the aircraft, it was just trashed. 
There was litter, <laughs> litter and piss and shit and blood and fucking all our shit was all over the place. And we have to like clean all this up and offload this equipment. But I, I just remember uh, being on the ground and I was stoked we made it. I don't want to say without issue, but like we didn't have any anything terrible happen. No crazy medical emergencies. But like in reality, it's like you get you get all the refugees off the jet and then you're immediately throwing them into a hangar that is not any better. It was like a humanitarian crisis. Like there's not enough food, there's not enough water, there's not enough beds, it's dirty. That hangar, because we ended up like working shifts in the hangar. When we weren't flying, we would work in the hangar as medical support. And like that was just like a never ending. If you weren't sick or injured when you got there, you would be sick or injured by the time you got to the hangar because it was just like really rough conditions. And that's like, I don't say that to like place blame and say like we did a shitty job. I just mean it like it was just such an overwhelming amount of people and not enough resources. Like it was just, uh, we filled all those hangers with people and it's, it's, it's Qatar in August. Like it was hot as balls. It's not conducive to like heal or treat people. So like it just never ending shit show in that hangar. And then, yeah, sorry, I've, I've been talking a lot, but you can ask questions. I, I, I do good with questions. <laughs> no, this is your interview. You're supposed to talk a lot. That's, that's good. I had one guy who he went for like three hours straight without, without really? stopping, so yeah. So no, that's good. And uh, I mean, was there anywhere, all the flights from HKI, did they all have to go to Qatar and go through Qatar? Or was there like, okay, was there bases cool. in Kuwait? That Was there bases in Kuwait that they could go to? Or So that's the crazy thing was like, Qatar was just like the most logical place to take them because it was the biggest, it had the most aircraft, it had the most people, and it was the easiest place to move people in and out to Germany or to the States or wherever they needed to go. Eventually, they started taking people in Kuwait. They started taking people in Bahrain. They started taking people in... This is another thing. This is a good one. So like Qatar, they're obviously like the... The agreement, the Qatar agreement that happened with the Taliban, like obviously that was in Qatar, but um, the Qatar Air Force, like during everything that was going on in Hkaya, the Qatar Air Force flew like some Taliban commander from Al Udeed to Qatar. So we were like going, we were like, because you have to go through customs when you come in and out, but um, we eventually just stopped doing that because there wasn't enough time it would take fucking forever so we would just drive straight to the flight line but one of the times a crew was going by customs and like the whole building was filled with qatar air force and army dudes and they were literally escorting a taliban commander on aludeed airbase like filled with u.s military personnel and they're transporting some dude from the taliban to h kaya to like join in on the fucking you know what i mean like that whole state department and government situation and the agreement that they had was just like so fucked because if you just like look back 10 years before somebody in the U S military sees somebody in the Taliban, they're going to shoot them. But then now it's like they're working hand in hand with the Taliban. They're working shifts with the Taliban. Like the Taliban are kind of like calling the shots because like that was just so fucked up to me. And the reason I brought this up was because we tried moving people to Saudi and Saudi's buddy-buddy with the Taliban. So many terrorists are from Saudi Arabia. They were like, no, don't bring them here. Like, don't bring them to this other U.S. military base in Saudi Arabia because technically 
it's a Saudi Arabian base, just like Qatar is technically a Qatari base, not a U.S. base. So they tried moving all these people from – this is kind of skipping forward a little bit. I'll go back to something else. But um, I was on a mission moving refugees from – we flew to Saudi to pick refugees up. Those refugees had just came from Qatar. And when they heard that they were going back to Qatar, they borderline rioted. They lost their shit because they knew how bad it was in Qatar. So like when we got to Saudi to pick them up, it was just like so fucked up because these people got moved from Qatar to Saudi specifically because there wasn't enough space or resources, et cetera. And then whoever in Saudi was like, no, bring them back. So we had to go back there. And like when you tell 240 angry, starving people who just escaped HKIA, you're going back to the shit show in Qatar. It was bad. And that was like, that was in September. Like that was at way after all this stuff. So yeah, they tried. I know they moved people into other bases in the Middle East, but I would say Qatar was like the main focal point just because of like logistically it made the most sense. But uh yeah, and eventually they started moving them to Germany. So that was that was actually my next mission was I flew from uh this is like a real a weird situation, but basically it was like the 25th, super late at night, and we got alerted. And it was a short uh it was one patient, so they split our crew. So it was just three of us. And at the time, my buddy Keith was like, dude, I want you to go to Germany. Cause like when you get to go to Germany, when you're deployed to the middle East, it's sick because you get to drink beer and you get to get good food. You know what I mean? And it's like, he was like, dude, I want you to take a break. Cause we had been running around nonstop since all this shit started. And he was like, I, like, I want you to go. So we had one kid, a burn patient. He had like electrocuted and burned himself and he needed to get to Germany like urgently cause he needed surgery. So we got alerted for this mission and it was on a KC-10, which is like a refueler. And then we took 205 refugees from Qatar to Germany because then Germany was setting up allies welcome type stuff like the tents and that whole thing. And that flight was gnarly because it was an overnight flight and they were just saying the bathroom thing. I know this is like such a weird thing to focus on, but the whole bathroom thing with having the aircraft be completely unserviceable because there was no bathrooms and not wanting 200 people to destroy a bathroom. That's like a huge, <laughs> as a medical person, it's like a huge pain in the butt because it's like, what? how are these 200 people going to use the bathroom when they need to use the bathroom? We ended up like filling five gallon buckets with sand, like a fucking litter box and like put up like a privacy curtain. And I spent that whole night just taking people to the bathroom. <laughs> just like, that, like my, my patient was fine. My patient had like full thickness burns on his hands and some burns on his face, but he was like ambulatory and stable, but he unfortunately was going to lose his hands. So he needed surgery soon. So we like loaded all our stuff on that jet and the air force at the time was just using any and all aircraft are moving refugees. I don't care if you're a refueler or a cargo jet or a reconnaissance jet or whatever you are. If you have space, if you have a cargo compartment that has space, you're moving refugees to wherever they need to go. So they ended up, yeah, loading 205, I think it was 201 or 205, whatever, on that jet. And then we had like an eight-hour flight from Qatar to Germany. And that was when I started getting like kind of like a, a closer look into like how the culture is different, how like men treat women and how men treat children. 
So there was like a baby, like a baby baby laying on the aircraft floor. And it's like, you know, same thing, like hard ass aircraft floor and like trash bags. And so I like took off my uniform top and like folded it into a square to like put the baby's head on. And so I kind of first started seeing it when I was in the hangar. All the dude, all the Afghan dudes, the refugees were just like chilling. They were fucking, they were kicked up and relaxing. And the women and the kids were getting food and water and diapers and wipes and shoes and whatever they could. So that was like my first realization of like, oh, like it's a very different culture. And like you, I couldn't like walk up and talk to an Afghan. You have to like be with her brother or her father or her husband or whoever. So then that flight, you know, I'm trying to be respectful. And I like to put my hand over my heart and spoke to the woman. She spoke English and like, it's like, this is for the baby. Like put the baby on this. And like, I gave her something else like food and water, whatever. And then um, two hours later, we were about to start our descent. And so like, when you start descent, you have to like make sure everybody's secure and everybody has all their stuff secured and blah, blah, blah. And um, the baby was back on the floor and some dude had my top because he was cold. He had like taken it from the baby and was wearing it. And I, and I had been like, we, you fly at random times or whatever. So I had been up for like 30 hours or something. And I fucking snapped. I lost it on this dude. Cause I was just like, do you see the half naked baby laying on the floor? That was for them. Not for you. Cause you're fucking cold. Like you're a grown ass man. You can be cold for a couple hours spazzed <laughs> like people had to like pull me away from this dude because i was just like so frustrated but in reality that's just their culture the men do and take what they want so like that wasn't that weird to me but like you would never see if somebody gave a baby a blanket in america some grown-ass dude wouldn't rip it off the baby and like keep it for himself hang on one sec sorry no you're good what was i gonna say yeah so we flew to germany and then at that point it was the 26th and my crew was split up. So then we got to Germany and there's all these people that the air force has spun up a bunch of people. I knew actually a bunch of airvac technicians and nurses, and they needed to come back to Qatar with us because they were going to start flying missions to HKIA as um, that PMAP thing that I was talking about, like the individual medical people. So we were like waiting for a flight and Germany was a shit show too. Like logistically, there's so many aircraft coming in and out. So we spent the day in Germany and I remember like, I was like really like itching to like get back to Qatar because I wanted to go to HKI again. Like I wanted to like keep flying refugees. I wanted to help with whatever way I could. So I wasn't like super stoked about being in Germany. <clears throat> so we landed in Germany like in the morning and I met up with all these people that I knew from the States, like people that I was stationed with who had just gotten out there because they were going to come to Qatar. And we like went to the mall and like went to Subway and shit. I was very like overstimulated. Like what the fuck? I'm in Germany now. Like I was just in Qatar. And then, so obviously that was the 26th and Abbeygate, that was around like 5 PM. Right. Yeah. It was, I forget the exact time. I think it was like probably well, closer to 530, but it was somewhere between five and six. Right. So whatever time it was in Germany, I think it was later at night. So we were like stuck on the flight line. The jet that we were supposed to take was broke. We had a fuck ton of people and we were like walking around the flight line, like trying to get on an aircraft to get back. And we were with this Navy doc who was, I think he was in two one. And all of a sudden my phone started blowing up because we had WhatsApp for like a crew chat when you would get alerted 
they would message the whole rotation, crew one, you're alerted or whatever it was. Uh, sometimes it would be like your officer in charge would say that you've been alerted, whatever. But I saw the text and it was like, all AE crews and CCAT report to the AOT, which is Air Medical Evacuation Operations Team. It's like our building. Like all crews report to the AOT now. And everybody was texting like, I have the van. I'm in this vehicle. I'm moving. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? And then somebody, because we're in Germany, we had cell service. Somebody was like, there was a, a, a bomb went off at HKIA. And I was like, oh, fuck. So then it became like they needed to spin up a crew to go get patients because there was a bunch of patients. And so all my, my, the two dudes on my crew, one other crew and a CCAT team, they got spun up and they flew to HKIA that night to pick them up. And um, the reason I like to think about it is like if that kid hadn't have, if that kid didn't burn his hands and I had to go to Germany, if that didn't happen, I would have been on that mission. And that mission was like an insane, like they moved whatever, 20, 30 patients and five were like vented and, you know, they were really sick. And you know, all those, all those dudes, like they got blown up. That is, that's what you want to help those people. Those guys and girls, like Americans are hurt. I want to be there to help. Those are my homies. Those are my brothers and sisters. So that was like a weird like moment where I kind of realized like, oh, if this like 18 year old kid on his first deployment didn't electrocute himself, I would have been on that mission. But I don't like look at it like that anymore. It's just like a weird thing that I thought about. But so my friends, they went on, they flew that mission that night into HKIA and picked up whatever it was, 30 patients, you know, the Tyler was on there. Uh, there's another girl whose name I can't remember, but I follow her on Instagram. They moved all those patients out. And that was like a crazy situation. And like, I, I wasn't there, so I can't speak to it, but I'm like super proud to know those people and like who got to, who got there fast to move all those patients out because that whole situation was just so fucked, especially after I heard Tyler's story about how they they had the shooter's description and they had ID'd, or the bomber's description, they had ID'd him, they had like eyes on him and they didn't get the authority to take the shot. Like once I heard that whole ordeal, that kind of like ruined it, ruined everything for me. Just like knowing that that could have possibly been prevented and avoided. Like if you would just let Marines do Marine shit, and kill bad guys. Like that's what they're there to do. Once I heard that whole story, yeah, it sucked. Just knowing that uh it could have possibly been avoided. They could have taken that dude out. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't know. I don't obviously it happened, no. but yeah. You know. Yeah, Tyler's testimony in Congress back in uh March. Yeah, March twenty three. That that really opened up a lot of conversation about what actually happens. Yeah. And at, at the time, I was just, I was working on my thesis. But I, I was researching this, but I was just working on my thesis at school, oh, wow. and I was interviewing I was interviewing guys and finding out a lot that was not in the news and was not in the official record. And then Tyler gave his testimony, and then he did the podcast episode. And then uh, back in August, I got to go up to DC with the OAR and all that. And we uh, I didn't even know this was happening. I got off the plane, literally twenty minutes later, I'm on Capitol Hill at a uh, 
House Foreign Affairs Committee huh. uh, roundtable with all the families from the uh, 13 who were killed. And that was, and Tyler was there. Some of the guys from the foundation were there. A lot, a lot of guys from 2-1 were there. Yeah. A couple of guys from 1-8 and uh, others, 82nd guys. And that was, that, that was rough. Yeah. I can't, there's like no way to say rest in peace to those people. But like that, that bombing and like, Marine, like I just have so much respect for the Marines and like there's a um one of the guys that was killed we did a a memorial and somebody had spoken to his wife I think and he one of the guys um I have all their names written down I could probably tell you which one but his wife basically like he was going to be separating from the Marine Corps and then he got thrown on that deployment and his wife said like he would have gone even if he knew that was going to happen. That's the type of guy he was. And that alone, I think, just kind of sums it up for me. You know, they got the shittiest, the shit, they got put in the shittiest situation with terrible communication and terrible guidance and made the most impossible shit happen. They moved so many people, they saved so many people and they sacrificed themselves. And I can't even begin to like, I'm never going to, forget those 13 names those 13 names have been written in my phone since it happened and it's hard to kind of put into words and i don't ever want to come off like i'm disrespectful or inconsiderate but i just have so much respect for the sacrifice that they made and um what happened and it just uh it blows my mind to think about how um when i when you told me that you were a veteran and i was like yeah it makes sense that you're a veteran because a lot of people don't really like forgot people, a lot of people have like kind of forgot, like this is like old news. Obviously we're living in a pretty crazy time right now, but uh, you just can't forget those 13, the sacrifice that they made, the situation that they were in and how historic the non-combatant that, that Neo wouldn't have happened without them. Yeah. And I'm not trying to get all woe is me, but I'm just like, I can't even begin to explain how it makes me feel when I think about that bombing and abigate the sacrifice that everybody made so yeah it's kind of a ramble but yeah but i mean everybody, everybody that was involved played an extremely crucial part especially like guys like you that in the air in the air crews and the pilots and without those planes nobody was getting out and just and nobody was getting in either because yeah the guys i've talked so far i told a lot of stories about like just trying to get into h and how much of a process that was yeah. Going from, uh, at least for the guys at 1 8, going from Kuwait to Qatar and then to H. Kyle. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, I remember, um, yeah, I just wanted to, I wanted to give credit to the, the crews and the CCAT team that moved those patients just because that was a, a monumental and historic mission, obviously. But those dudes will never, those guys and girls will never like say that because the more important thing is like remembering and honoring the lives of those that, that we lost, but that mission. And then there was another mission after that. They really, they really made shit happen and uh, they did an incredible job and yeah, I have a hard time thinking about it now or talking about it now just cause I, 
it's a weird <clears throat> a weird time but yeah i'm just honored to have gotten to serve during that time and i wish i could have done more i think everybody wishes they could have done more i wish things had gone differently i wish things had uh ended differently and it sucked like <laughs> finding out <laughs> how much of a shit show it was from like a strategic perspective and a government, just how many people dropped the ball and how many people, but you send in, you send in the dudes like the hitters, like the dudes that are going to do their job, who are going to put it all out there and are willing to die for it. But then when it comes to holding people accountable, it's like, you can't get, a, <clears throat> you can't get a word out of anybody to that'll hold themselves accountable. And now there's people like you and there's people like Tyler and there's people like in the OAR foundation who are like, their mission is to like tell, tell the stories and share the stories and remember what happened. And it's not probably not your main mission, but people need to explain, people need to be held accountable because it's, cause now I'm like, I, I was involved in like less than 1% of that whole thing. Like I played like a really small role. I was there. That's it. But I think about it every single day and people have forgotten about it. And it's just like a weird uh, feeling. I'm kind of rambling a little bit. But yeah, I don't – I like think about it every single day. So it's like a weird – weird to talk about it now when I try to like rack my brain and think about it. But yeah. Yeah, I mean that was – I mean it was a huge deal for yourself and the thousands of other people who were involved. I mean that was the – that was the end of 20 years of conflict, 20 years of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. Yeah. That's – doesn't matter how you cut it. That's a bit, that's a very, very big deal. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I'm trying to think of OAR specific stuff after that, after the bombing happened, it was very like, I don't remember when the 30th or the 31st, whenever that, when did that get established? Like that was the end date. I don't remember when that was, but all of a sudden that felt like super quick. Like it was like, this is where we need to wrap this up. We need to keep going. We need to keep getting people out. And, uh, so crews kept flying in and out. I got alerted for another mission that was supposed to go to Hkaya, and the plane left without us. That was kind of funny. They like, because <laughs> at the time it basically became like a standard of like you wanted, they wanted medical people or an AE crew on every single flight going into Hkaya because they knew how sick and injured the refugees were. And so we got spun up and we were heading out to the jet. And like I said, we have a lot of equipment and a lot of people and it takes time and we're not the most flexible and agile. But we were, we got like no notice and we were like ripping out there, trying to get out there. And I watched the plane just taxi out. And I was like, oh, all right. So they left us for that one. And that's, that was my last. Uh... And then the last thing that happened was, I think it was the 30th. I got put on like a super crew. It was like 25 people, like 20 or 25 people. And we flew to the airspace over HKIA and we basically circled for like six hours and got refueled. And we were basically just waiting to land, like, because Intel was saying like, everybody knows that this is the last day, the airfield's gonna get overrun, there's gonna be another bombing, there's gonna be, you know what I mean? Like there was gonna be like a bunch of firefights, like the Intel report was bad. So it was like expecting like, there's gonna be a bunch of casualties again, and we wanna have plane on standby with an AE crew to be ready to land and pick those people up. But that was going to be 
a sh- like a nightmare, a shit show because everybody was going to be gone. Like there was going to be any kind of order. So I got, yeah, I got put on that mission and it was like a bunch of really, really, really talented and knowledgeable medical people. And I felt very like inexperienced. Like I felt like, what do I add to this crew? I guess they picked me. They were like, yeah, like you're a good, <laughs> you're good. I was like, okay, sure. And yeah. And I remember we just sat, we flew around HKIA for six hours, just waiting to hear if something was going to happen on the 30th and the 31st. It was probably the 30th into the 31st. I can't remember. But um, we just sat there in silence for like hours, just circling over HKIA. And then the pilot came over the loudspeaker and was like, everybody's out. We're good. And we were the last U.S. aircraft to leave Afghanistan airspace. (laughs) I was like, I remember being like, damn, I'm like legit at the end of this war. That's the end of this, the Afghanistan chapter of the war on terror. That was it. And so nothing ever came of that. But then for September, we still had to move refugees. So that was a whole nother, there's a whole nother month of getting refugees out to Germany or to wherever. So, yeah. On missions that you flew, do you have like an estimate of like how many refugees actually like that you handled on missions? Uh, yeah, it was like uh nine sixty. It was like nine sixty or nine fifty, something like that. So uh, just under a thousand. Yeah, for it was three mission, four missions, five flights because one of the missions was a there and back, there and back, and that's crazy to think about just because we moved hundreds of thousands of people. And so that's like literally such a small percentage of it. But at the time it felt like that plane is supposed to have like, I think 90 something people max on it. And I was on that jet with 300 plus refugees and then a bunch of crew. And I just remember being like, and there were missions that had way more than that. I think one of those first ones was like 800 or whatever, 700 or 800. Just to think about that that many people on one aircraft is just nuts. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, I, the second that the second, all that stuff was done. I mean, it, it was still going on. Like when I left in October, there were still refugees in Qatar. You know what I mean? Like there were still refugees on the base. It was obviously way less. The majority of them had been moved to Germany or at that point, they had probably even made it to the States. And then, yeah, then it was just back to normal missions flew to uh well actually what was weird about funny about that was we flew a mission and uh we went to syria to pick up a bunch of army guys they were leaving their deployment and uh it was crazy to talk to those dudes because their the footprint in syria is really small and they were like what the fuck happened like you got to tell me what happened we like only have like the news and like people from back home telling us and they've been out in the middle of nowhere in Syria. And I just remember like showing those dudes pictures and like showing them, trying to explain everything from my perspective. It's like way different than an army and Marine perspective, but it was crazy thing about like, there was still other shit going on that whole time in Syria and Iraq and other parts of the middle East and Africa or whatever. And that was just like two weeks, but that was two weeks of a five month deployment. But that literally felt like my whole deployment. That literally felt like I did that the entire time. So that was crazy. 
but yeah, I remember picking those dudes up and they were like, yeah, dude, like people forgot about us. <laughs> we were supposed to leave like months ago, but all the aircraft and all the assets and resources were focused on HKIA and everything got pushed back. So yeah, I, and then I left, I left that deployment at the beginning of October and full circle, super fucking weird. My Uber driver in Baltimore was a evacuee, was a refugee. He was showing me his WhatsApp, like on his phone. And he had like flown out on like the 22nd, not there, the 23rd. Yeah, because I heard him speaking Dari on the phone. And I was like, are you from Afghanistan? <laughs> I was like, I just came back. <laughs> he was like, no, dude, I was there. Like he showed me his WhatsApp. And I was like, that was a very weird moment. Yeah, it's a hell of a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, super weird. Yeah, if you have other questions about it, I'm like, I'm pretty shitty at talking about <laughs> like specific <laughs> details and stuff. If you have other questions, feel free to ask. No, you're good. It's been it's been good so far. I got no complaints. Okay, good. So I forget exactly what day it was, but around the middle of the evacuation, yeah, uh, they authorized the civil air fleet. Yeah. I heard about to go that. support to go support the mission. I don't know if you interacted with that or felt any relief from that or any more complications from that. I like I literally had just like heard about it. I never saw or like civil air like the civil air patrol or like no, I think it was I, oh, I, think, I think it was like the civil air fleet or something like that. Oh damn no, I didn't. But hear it was anything. like using it was like the authorization to use civilian aircraft. Right. Yeah. Oh, yes. So yeah. that happened because there was all there was like British and French aircraft and like other nations aircraft that were flying refugees out as well, obviously, like the whole time. But yeah, there was a couple like. I do remember there were civilian aircraft on the flight line when I was there, but I couldn't tell if they were like still there because it was like the airport. You know what I mean? Like, but uh, like it, it, they had already been there kind of thing. But I watched, uh, I watched a couple planes come into Qatar, like white jets, like civilian jets that were coming from Hkaya around. I think it was before the the twenty six. So, but yeah, I never really had any interaction with that or heard too much about that. You're very like the majority of the the majority like during that time, any off time that I had. I would go to like the gym or the pool or whatever, just to talk to people and like hear their experiences, other crew chiefs or load masters or pilots or Ravens or whoever. I'd be like, dude, what were your missions like? Like, what is your shit? What's, what have you done? And yeah, I heard like crazy, crazy stories the entire time. Everybody had a different experience. Everybody had some different type of like shit show or bad situation that like you didn't even think was possible. Like, other people would share their stories and it'd be like, I didn't even think about that. I knew this girl who was a loadmaster and they flew into Hkaya and like, they were trying to close the doors. There's like the crew entry door at the front of the aircraft. They were like trying to close the doors and people were like hanging off the doors, yanking them down and they couldn't close the doors. You can't take off unless you close all the doors. They had like closed the ramp and they were trying to close the crew entry. So eventually they became, it became standard operating procedure. Like all the doors were chained from the inside. They would only open the ramp and the crew entry door and all the other doors were chained closed because 
like I said, by the time that I got to HKIA, the flight line was like really organized and orderly. So it wasn't like the news. Like it wasn't like people hanging off aircraft. I didn't see any of that. But for those first few, those first few days where they started flying in and out before they had like fully established control and security of the flight line, those people had to fucking really go through some shit just to secure their aircraft, which is like not something that you normally have to deal with. It's a pretty unprecedented experience for all the crews and everybody on the ground of just kind of coming back to like, I highly doubt that anybody in the Army, Marines, or Navy, or Air Force had like trained Neo-specific scenarios. Like my job, you train like, this is like a trauma scenario, or this is like a combat scenario or this is you know you're moving a bunch of these kind of patients or these kind of patients but a lot of those people like at the tactical level who are operating the aircraft or they're on the ground they were just figuring out as they as they went figuring out what worked best and you know what i mean and the idea of that is pretty crazy to think that they had two weeks to basically unfuck that whole situation and so many different things were thrown at them so many different kinds of situations and so many things like, like you said, where they had their hands tied or they were restricted, but they didn't know who to go to, to ask for authority or that kind of thing. So like, when I think about stuff like that, that's what really gets me is like uh, the, it's the people at the tactical level. It's like the, you know, the, the E3s and above and the O2s, O3s who are like at the tactical level, making those decisions and not having those proper lines of communication were like no guidance, no direction, just like figure it out, do what you can. They just straight up did everything that they could the entire time. Everybody did. So that's like my big takeaway was the group effort, the team effort, the collaboration of like, I don't care if it's not your job, this is what you're doing, no matter what it was. I thought that was crazy. Everybody that I've talked to so far, it's just like everybody that was involved is a credit to the service there part. Like you're a credit to the United States Air Force, the guys that I talked to in the Marines or credit to the Marine Corps, credit to the Army, all that kind of stuff. Credit to the nation as a whole, in my opinion, from everything that I've heard, doing the most they possibly could with, like you were saying, little to no guidance, little to no supplies, no real direction. And they had at least one hand tied behind their back, if not both hands tied behind their back most of the time. Right. And it's just the fact that we got 125 to 127,000 people out of there yeah. in that time frame in the chaos that existed. That's a success story. I mean, strategically, it is absolute cluster. Right. And it is, it is a tragedy, it is catastrophe, it is all the bad things. But even then, there's still within that, there is success. Yeah. But it belongs to you guys at the tactical level, like you're saying. And those officers were supported that. But yeah, absolutely. The the leadership really dropped a big ball on yeah. this one. And that's that's not my personal opinion about politics or anything like that. That's just at this point from everything that I've been reading about, listening to you guys and researching this so on and so forth, that's just an objective objective truth. Yeah. For sure. Like I literally found a memo that was for a meeting on the fifteenth at three thirty PM. In DC for the for Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, all the bigwigs to discuss planning for an evacuation. Yeah. Well, 3:30 on August 15th, guess what time that is in Kabul? Right. 
that's that's two thirty in the morning or two o'clock in the morning. The Taliban have already entering the city. Right. And that wasn't even a meeting to plan. That was a meeting to say, okay, now we're going to go to our separate departments and we're going to start planning. Yeah. That comes over and done with by then. No, it, it, it like, I remember like we would, it was like July and we were talking about it and it was like, they were forecasting like the Taliban wasn't going to do anything for months. They were like, oh, it's going to take them a few months to like, retake all these territories and overtake these bases or it was they they needed half the summer and they were in Kabul. They were evacuating the embassy. They were in the city establishing control again. I just don't know I'm not a policymaker. I'm not a decision maker at that level. I never was, right? But it's just like I'll never understand how we weren't more prepared. I'll never it shouldn't it shouldn't have been what it was. I understand that it was likely unavoidable just because of the sheer number of people, but we could have started that. We could have started that evac a year in advance. <laughs> like we could have gradually worked up instead of it being two weeks of scrambling where it was just so weird to like hear Intel and hear people talk about knowing it was coming knowing that it was eventually going to have to happen. There was going to be a non-combatant evacuation. And then all of a sudden, when it happened, it was the most disorderly, chaotic. I just, I'll never, I'm not over it. <laughs> I'll never, I'll never get over it. <laughs> like, I'll never, yeah, that like ruined, I, I, I knew I was done in the military after that deployment. Because I was like, I finally felt like I had my opportunity to like do something at that level and like make a difference. And I felt like, I mean, I still think I made a difference. I contributed to that mission and I'm proud of that. But the fact that there wasn't that level of like understanding and support at like the strategic level and like the decision maker level that you put so many people in that situation where it was just an impossible uphill battle the entire time with restrictions and lack of guidance and lack of information. It just, I just felt very uh, let down when I came back and I never got over it. <laughs> I like never, I'd, it was one of the reasons I got out. I mean, I was unhappy with my military. I was, I, after I did that, I just felt like, what, what is there left for me to do? Wait to be put in another situation like that. Wait for some other catastrophe or shit show or you know what i mean some i just came back and was like i guess that was everything i wanted to do in the military like i i wanted that type of experience and i got it but when i kind of learned about the back end of it i felt very let down that the rest of the government and the strategic level of the military was not they constantly preach about integrity and accountability and all these things and that was truly like the 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 one thing that was lacking that entire time was like doing the right thing, and being being accountable. Yeah, it ruined me. I was done. I was like, I'm fucking, I can't, I couldn't believe it. I still can't. And then after researching and learning more about it, yeah, I was just kind of disgusted and let down. I'm not gonna besmirch the good name of America. <laughs> I love this country. I'm proud to have served, but just because I was a part of it knowing that there were so many balls dropped and there were so many so many things that just weren't planned for was just 
so disappointing. <laughs> it really sucks to think about now. Yeah. Yeah. And that was just for whatever reason, just thinking everything was just going to be, everything was just going to be okay. Like nothing was ever going to be too, te- like it wasn't going to be great, but it wasn't going to be terrible. And they just didn't, they didn't plan for terrible. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, and like when, uh, another question I'll ask when they, when they shut down Bagram on, uh, from July 1st to July 2nd. Yeah. Did y'all, did y'all hear about that at least or? Well, all I remember was uh, going on like Instagram or Facebook and seeing the Taliban working out at the gym and like raiding the PX at Bagram. They had like the second we left, like they were there. I didn't know too, too, too much about like the final, final withdrawal from Bagram specifically. Like I said, I flew there at the end of May and it was a ghost town. There was no one there. At least from where I could, where I was on the flight line, there was no one in any building. There was no vehicles. There was no other aircraft besides the one that I was on. And um, we had a bird strike when we were landing, so the aircraft needed to be maintenance needed to receive maintenance. So we did a tail swap. We went to a different aircraft. Those are the only two aircraft on the flight line. There was no blimps. There was no. <laughs> there was nobody out there. And that was May. And I think people still flew into Bagram after that to move, ironically, I think like a COVID patient. But yeah, I didn't really hear too much about what happened there. Yeah, that just surprised me too. This like I knew there was like an inkling like something was gonna go down coming into August. But or at least from what I could tell is that y'all didn't really receive but but of course to be fair, it's like how could y'all receive because when they first started kind of evacuating people setting up the airport for evacuation on the 12th and the 13th, 12th and 13th, everything was okay. 14th, everything was decent. Right. 15th. Okay. Things are starting to get sketchy. 16th, all hell breaks loose the night of the 15th going into the 16th. Cause that's when people break down the gates of the airport and start flooding the flight line. That's I, I guess when y'all start receiving so many people and I was like, Hey, everybody get to the hangar now, get whatever medical equipment you can get your hands on now. Yeah. It's like y'all, I guess y'all just couldn't really be prepared for that because the higher leadership had no inkling that, at least in Qatar, had no inkling that that was going to happen. I remember when I what it sounds like when I got to the hangar. I remember the first thing I thought was like, "How is there nothing set up? How did we not know <laughs> that this is the situation that we were going to be in?" I hadn't thought about it because at the time I was just like waiting for direction. That's what you do in the military. You hurry up and wait. You wait to be told what to do. You wait to be told this is your mission. This is what you're doing today. This is what you're doing tomorrow. Like that's so when I showed up to the hangar, I was just like, this is what this is what we have planned. Like this is what we have is just an empty hangar and figure it out. I mean, that is what we're there for. We're we're the doers. We're the tactical level people who are gonna make shit happen. But it was crazy to just be like, zoom out and think like, we've had all these Intel reports. We've had all this time. We've had this whole summer. We knew this was coming. And then now it's here and we're not ready. And yeah, that was weird. Finishing up with deployment in September, you say you left in October. Yeah. And you also went back stateside right after that? Yeah, I went. Uh, everything with OAR ended on the 31st, but then I still had September. Still flew like whatever, three or four missions that month, three, four, five, whatever. And then I left October 5th or 6th. 
went back to Baltimore. This isn't really relevant, but it's funny. I I went to the bar in the hotel that night because I was just like back in America. I could like order food and watch football and like eat and drink. And uh, I got like hell of food. I got like a sandwich and like wings and like a beer and a whiskey. I was like balling out back in America. And uh, this woman came up to me and was like, did you just get out of prison? And I was like, what? Like I thought they're like this like attractive woman came up to me and I thought she was like coming to like chat me up. And then she asked me, and she said, did you just get out of prison? And I like laughed and I was like, no. What are you? She was like, you've been like sitting here smashing food, chugging beers and like looking around for like an hour. She was like, she was like roasting me. She was like, you look crazy. I was like, oh, damn, I didn't even realize. I was like, I haven't been in America in five months. I guess I'm a little uh, overwhelmed. (laughs) But I thought that was funny. But yeah, and then I flew back to California where I was stationed and typical military, you have to report the next day or the next duty day. I think I I came back on like a Thursday or a Friday and I had to be back on that Monday and just to like check back in and then start my uh, R&R and leave. And I know you probably know, like the military is like lonely family doesn't really come to visit you. Like my family was in Maine and I was in California. So like I came back and immediately started having like relationship problems and like that whole thing. And then like started realizing that I thought I was like done with the air force. The end of that deployment coming back from that deployment was just kind of like the beginning of the end for me. I was kind of like thinking like uh, I had extended my enlistment like once and then my enlistment was coming up. And I extended one more time because I wasn't sure like if I was I was not ready to get out. <laughs> like I wasn't prepared at all. So yeah, I came back in October of 21. And then I think I made the decision that I was getting out in like the beginning of 22. But then I still had until August of this 2023. Yeah, and I came back and like uh the weird the weird part was like all like the recognition and stuff, because the um like the Air Force does a really good job of recognizing people and giving people awards and that whole thing. And I like talked about OAR like so much to like generals and like historians and like all these people who like wanted to know about it. And um, like my squadron was like a newer squadron. So the fact that we had like been involved and that was like the beginning of like the, our history as a squadron was like really cool to like get to be a representative of that. And a bunch of my friends, you know, got the Distinguished Flying Cross from that mission on the 26th, which was like incredible. And um, obviously respect to them, credit to them. But it was frustrating because I started like hearing like the rumblings about how like the Army and the Marines are just like back to business. They're not getting the like recognition. They're not getting credit. They're not getting like they can't claim that they were taking fire. They can't get certain types of medals because they have all this like red tape about what did happen or what didn't happen. So it was like frustrating that like um, all these people in the Air Force are getting recognition and awards and ceremonies and all this stuff. And they did deserve it. And I still think they do. But it was frustrating that there wasn't more of like a collective effort to like recognize and give credit to everybody. The Air Force kind of got like a lot of shine just because they're flying the aircraft. They're flying people in and out. and like the dudes on the ground who like made that possible kind of got shafted and you know what I mean? And that was like frustrating to hear about. And it was just another thing that it just kind of like rubbed me the wrong way was 
I was like proud of it and I was proud to talk about it and I was proud to share my experiences, but it just like dragged out so long recognizing all these people who air force specifically, I do think they deserved it. I'm not saying they don't, but I wish there had been more of like a, let's give props to the dudes on the ground. Let's give props to the partner forces. Let's give props to, you know what I mean? That was difficult, a difficult spot to be in a little bit for me. It, it was much different. The guys I talked to in the Marines, it was really tight lipped and it was really weird, especially for uh, the guys at my old unit, second LAR. I was told because, like, the way second LAR does deployments, they're a whole battalion, but the whole battalion doesn't deploy at one time because there's only three or there's only three active duty LAR battalions in the entire Marine Corps. So, the way LAR usually does deployments is that they'll send one company from the battalion to attach to another battalion. As like an augment yeah but the way they started doing it back in 2018 2019 when i deployed was they were only sending a platoon at a time so that's about like maybe 50 dudes and so when they when these guys go out and they come back from the from h kai and all that it's like there are certain things that they're trying to figure out what they can and can't say to guys in their own unit, right to guys in their own battalion about what they just went through yeah so it's like really weird to have that you know like the hardest thing to me at least about separating from the military after being in the military is just not being around the guys anymore not being around the guys that you go through the shit with mm-hmm. and it's like how can you talk to people who and then like the guys in lar are not being allowed really to talk to their own boys back in the rest of the battalion yeah that's when things start getting screwy in the head and all that because like when you're going through everything together and you're around all the guys that are going through it with you, regardless of how how shitty it is, it's bearable because you're with the boys. Yeah. But when you're no longer with them, it's just, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I mean, I'm going through it right now. I mean, I'm only, I've only been out for four or five, five or six months. I can't do math. Five months. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's weird as hell. It's not having that community anymore, that camaraderie and like, uh, you already know everybody's stories. You've already told each other. You know what I mean? Like you've already been there, done that. <clears throat> but my friends and I like still, my friends in the military, are fucking, they're still in the military. They're busy, dude. Like <laughs> They're doing shit all the time. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. now it's like a weird. And I've like talked to my girlfriend and stuff about her, my family about it, but I don't like talk like I would like this because they wouldn't understand it. They wouldn't. That's definitely been the hardest. The weirdest part is like, uh, and that's why I was saying to you, like, I didn't like, I don't like, I don't want like my name associated or like my face or like, I don't want like any kind of like, this is, he did this. It's not like that for me. It's just like, I haven't talked to anybody about it, like in this level of detail, like ever, because the people that I did talk to about it were either there. So like, they know exactly what the fuck I'm talking about, or the people that I've even attempted to like give any kind of detail or insight about it like they don't fucking understand it and they don't they don't know like what the mindset is like or like what your thought process is like or what it feels like so yeah it's weird i think about it like every day i I can't there's like not a day that goes by that i don't think about flying that day into h kaya or being on the ground in germany and hearing about the bombing or like being in the hang like i think about that deployment every day so it's like a weird kind of uh yeah i don't know how to describe it but I know you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> like where you yeah. just you can't like 
you don't have that outlet anymore. You're not surrounded by people who are like in that kind of world. So yeah, it's tough. And then you, <laughs> I try to like find like veteran communities and all due respect, all, uh, I respect all veterans, but it's like a lot of older dudes who like, again, don't really know what you're talking about. Like they have their own, we have similarities and similar experiences, but it's like, we're from completely different worlds. And yeah. So, that generational gap. Yeah, for sure. And like, I meet like GWAT veterans, OG dudes, like 2004, 2006 type veterans. They don't even want to fucking hear about OAR to them. You know what I mean? Like how much of a shit show that was and how let down they were being in Afghanistan in the early 2000s and the early 2010s and that whole thing. That generation of GWAT veterans is like very upset <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And understandably so. I mean, I, I remember hearing uh, throughout the two weeks of the evacuation, it's a statistic that I heard and uh, I found the article again later was uh, the VA suicide hotline or crisis hotline or whatever it was. Yeah. More than 35,000 calls during those two weeks. Yeah. And it's just, that's a lot. Yeah. And that should hopefully put things into perspective. And then the thing about how many calls did they not get? For sure. Which is just, it's just, it's not, it's not fun to think about, but it's a, it's a part of everything as much as anything else, unfortunately. Yeah. Like I know uh, in, in LAR in December, we just did a five, a Memorial 5k for uh, one of the guys who unfortunately took his own life back in uh october 2022 and then uh i was actually in a meeting uh, a couple of days ago and uh over the week over this past weekend they were talking about there was a crisis uh with one individual over the weekend but thankfully as far as i know he's okay he got the help that he needed yeah. so everything worked out on that end but and then i was told uh, apparently we, we've lost six that we know of so far to themselves which is sucks yeah i'm sorry but yeah uh but i hope in doing this too it's like obviously my main goal in doing this is to create some kind of historical record in an archive in a database so that this moment is remembered if people don't want to remember it right now yeah but future generation posterity will remember it for sure and while my personal goal and the goal of my team is not to get anybody in trouble high or low sure sure but we're going to research and get that information and let people know and then i'm not naive about it people can absolutely use this information to hold those individuals accountable sure as well they probably should me personally as well doing this is to give guys like yourself who haven't really you said you haven't really talked about with anybody yet yeah especially being out is to give you a kind of cathartic experience where you can talk about it and it's yeah. like i wasn't i'll openly admit and i'll never claim that i was i wasn't there part of me wishes that i was especially since a lot of the guys who uh my junior marines who were in my platoon when i was in i got out they went on to a couple of them went on to be a part of one eight a couple of them went on to deploy with lar they were there i wish i was there with them because i feel like they as their sergeant as their senior nco their senior leadership i feel like i should have been there with them yeah but I don't know. I mean, I knew I knew the Doha agreement had already happened. I knew things were drawing down in Afghanistan, but I didn't know that was going to happen. There was no way for me to know that was going to happen. 
and maybe that's just me coping with myself. But at the same time, it's like predicting the future just isn't nobody's real interest, at least to a point. Because like there's no there's no way to know what's going to happen. There's so there's too many different variables, too many different factors, which could could or could not come into play. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to start ranting. This interview's not about me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I've, I feel like I've been giving you fucking horseshit, just rambling, because I can't. Like, it's it's the hardest thing to put into words for sure. Yeah, I gotta piss really yeah. quick. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I wasn't trying to cut you off. I was just like, I can't think. I have to piss a bit. <laughs> no, that's good. We've been we've been going for a while. Oh, another question I was thinking of earlier. Keep forgetting to ask was uh, as far as like you were talking about earlier with dealing with the female yeah. evacuees and all that. Did you all have a policy or were we all able to? Did you all have enough female personnel to interact with them? No. So like my crew specifically was all male. <laughs> and then in the hangar, there were females, but there wasn't anybody like dictating or directing saying these are their customs. Do X, Y, Z. You kind of just figured it out as you went along. But like, I remember I had a dude in the hangar who was like really sick and I was trying to, I had the translator and I was, uh, his wife was there at his bedside. So I was trying to like get the translator to ask her the questions that I would get the information from her. And it was, it was a clear, like the dude was like, that's not how you do it. Like we got to get another, we got to get another dude from her family over here. There was, and then like on the plane, the women like wouldn't really make eye contact with you. And at one point when I was on the ground in HKI and we were loading patients, a woman came on in a wheelchair and she was like a very large woman and she had like a broken leg and trying to move her from a, the wheelchair into her sidewall seat. And at this point I have, I have Afghan like civilians helping me because I'm just like, I need anybody to help me. And uh, I, we accidentally like hurt her leg. Like we had, she yelled, she screamed. Obviously I felt super bad because that is like the opposite of what you try to do as a medical person is you don't want to hurt somebody. You don't want to aggravate someone's injury further. So then of course, like the whole flight, I kept like trying to check on her. I like put blankets under her leg and like gave her food and water. Like so I was doing all this stuff and people were like looking at me fucking crazy that I kept going to talk to this woman and I didn't know what was going on. And then I eventually like, so like I said, there was nobody telling you, there was no brief on like, afghan customs and courtesies like there wasn't like that didn't happen there was a bunch of situations like that where i had like a lot of realizations of like how different how people in afghanistan have lived a life that we as americans can't even begin to like understand and culturally and historically whatever you want to say but like i remember it, <laughs> i had like a every time i flew i had like a three pound bag of trail mix and we were like running out of food. Like we had like fucking granola bars and water balls, like no food. And these kids saw like my bag of trail mix and I was going to give it to them. And medical person, you need to verify like before you give somebody food, if they have allergies, if you give somebody food or meds or whatever, do you have any allergies? So I said to the translator, I was like, ask them if they have a nut allergy. And he like looked at me like, what? And I was like, ask them like if they eat, if they eat this, it'll make them sick. Like it can make their throat swell up. It can make their skin red. It can make them itch. And he like talked to these other dudes and he was like, we don't have allergies. <laughs> and I was like, what? He was like, you 
have allergies in America because you have all the food. These people have never had trail mix. Like <laughs> these people have never eaten, you know what I mean? And that was like a real like I felt like such a dumb American. But I was just like doing what I thought was the right thing to do and ask. But there was a lot of moments like that where same thing, like this kid came up to me and I could see his bones in his arm. And oh shit, medical person, I can see your bones. I'm gonna fucking clean this and dress this and like bandage you. And the parents like stopped his parents like stopped and were like, no, 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 like that's just how he is. They have like like that's the type of shit that like they don't have access to medical care. They live in a third world country. They have like create they have diseases and infections and bacteria and shit that we don't have. That's just part of their life. Like that is like that's what he lives with. So like that was like there were so many moments like that where I was just like, this isn't weird to you guys. Like this isn't because this is fucked up to me. <laughs> and they're like, no, this is just life in Afghanistan. Shit's different out here. People are different. Everything is different. So there was many, many moments that I had interacting with refugees that I was just like, damn, these people have lived a completely different life. They have they've been through. It's been part of the. I've had a really hard time with like my family and friends when they complain. And I know you probably know what I'm talking about where they complain about like the most trivial stuff that like doesn't matter. That isn't life or death. That isn't like they're healthy. They have a house, they have a job, they have a car, they have all these things. And they bitch about a coworker or a friend or a family member, all this stuff. And I like every single time I don't like throw it in their face, but, and I don't say it to them, but I think about, I've seen, thousands of people who had to escape the fucking Taliban. They had to flee their home. And <laughs> like you guys are complaining about what? That's been a really hard thing for me because I've just been like, and I know a lot of veterans feel that kind of like frustration with civilians where they're like, you don't know, but like they don't know what they don't know. They haven't seen that or experienced that. So I can't like fault them for that. But yeah, I had many, many times where I was just like, oh, it's different. Things are really different. This is not how there was like, I have a picture. I can send it to you of uh, it was a baby. It was a really cute little boy, like a baby. And um, I wanted to take a picture of the baby. It was like a beautiful child. And I said to the husband, I was like, is it OK with you if I take a picture of your child? And he was like, oh, of course. Like They were like the two. That was the flight from Saudi. I didn't really get into detail about that. That was a that that was like a, a problem. There was a lot of military age males that were like, because there started being like rumblings and intel about like there could be terrorists sneaking on these flights, pretending to be refugees, and then they're going to do some type of insider attack. That was like kind of like a possible threat. And so you were super vigilant and super watchful and keeping an eye on everybody. And, you know, but that flight in particular, once they knew that they were going back to Qatar where they had left, there was a group of like military age males who were like super fucking angry and like standing and yelling and pointing at us and saying all this stuff. And it was getting really tense, but that husband and wife and baby were sitting next to me. I was on the floor and they were sitting in the seats. They were like the only people that were like, nice to me that whole flight one dude came up to me perfect clear english he was like hey motherfucker i went to the university of chicago 
You guys are treating us like fucking animals. Fuck you. Like to my face. I was like, you spoke English this whole time and you've been letting us fucking scream at you and like give hand and arm signals and you could have been fucking helping this whole time. He like inevitably was like an immigrant from Afghanistan, came to America, and then he went he went back to Afghanistan to get his parents out during the evacuation. But like this dude chose that time to like come up to me and like bitch me out. And I was like, bro, I'm literally like a point A to point B guy. They tell me to go on the plane, fly somewhere, pick people up and drop. Like, that's all I do. I've never been in a situation. I've never tried to control a group of 200 people who don't speak the same language as me, who are like fearful or hesitant or scared, whatever. Like, I've never had to fucking do this. So <laughs> instead of yelling at me for treating you guys like animals, yeah, I'm yelling at you and directing you and telling you to move forward or sit down or stand up or move this way, whatever. I don't, I I don't speak the language. I'm not from here. I don't know what to do. I'm just trying my absolute hardest to get you guys to where you need to be, where I was told that you need to be. So that whole, that flight was like super tense on the ground. And uh, an additional element of that whole age uh, <clears throat> from a medical perspective of the evac was um, we had a lot of pregnant women and a lot of orphans and pregnant women, pregnant women who you can't talk to like a normal patient. And they're all like under a severe amount of stress, heat exhaustion, dehydration, starvation. We had women having miscarriages. And yeah, I would like be in a situation where like, I know this woman is having a miscarriage. She's some guy, her family member is telling me that she's bleeding. And I know she's having a miscarriage. I don't speak the language. I don't know how to like convey like emotion and sympathy and like tell her you're losing the baby. This is like super fucking heavy. And I just like, I thought about it just now, but that mission, there was like 20 pregnant women and they all were like sick and fucked up and it sucked. Um, and that particular woman, yeah, like had a miscarriage and it, I was just like in such a, it was already like such a difficult situation, like logistically, but then on like a personal and a human level, it was so, I felt so helpless that I couldn't just like communicate how I would normally communicate to a patient in English. Like I've, I spent three years seeing people having their worst day. I've talked to people who knew they were dying. I talked to people who knew they were getting kicked out of the military. I talked to people who had just tried to kill themselves. And like, because we spoke the same language, I could relate to them and express sympathy and show emotion and like be like be kind to them and like just be there for them. Like a lot of times I never, I never had some like crazy fucking, I had to do some crazy medical intervention to like save their life. But a lot of times what those people needed was just somebody to be there for them. And those people, those evacuees and refugees, like all we wanted to do was be there for them in whatever way we could, whether if it was physically doing something to them to make them feel better. But I couldn't even I couldn't even do that the whole time because of the language barrier and the customs and culture and that whole thing. So that that shit really changed me. Like it really. Uh, it was just I, I was such a the whole time, like. I say helpless and I don't mean it like I was pathetic, like I wasn't fucking doing anything. 
but I felt helpless the whole time because it was just like the situation was so difficult. Like I, I just, uh, yeah, that was a long winded answer, but I don't even remember what your question was, but that's the type of shit that like sticks with me because there's only a certain number of people that still give a shit about OAR and what happened. And the majority of these stories and experiences are from people who were there doing the job. The rest of the people back home in America just fucking made it about Trump or Biden or whatever the fuck it was, politics, and you know what I mean? And bullshit. And if they only knew that people like me or the people that were there on the ground in HKIA or on these flights or whatever the fuck it was, this is what we joined to do. We asked to do this. We wanted to be a part of something like this. We don't give a fuck about like, yeah, in retrospect, now that I'm out, I can look back and ask, why did this happen? Why was it such a situation? Blah, blah, blah. But at the time, I'm not going to sit there and fucking wonder why. I'm just there. I'm going to fucking do. I'm going to use all my training, all my knowledge. I'm going to try. I'm willing to die for this. But the general average American, unfortunately, like, all they see is the fucking black and white of like whose fault is this and like this wouldn't be happening if trump was in office and like i lost a lot of civilian friends just based off of the shit that they posted on in social media during that time because i was just like these people have no fucking idea like you have you have no fucking idea what people in the military are there for they don't they don't make the decisions they just do we just do we make shit happen and uh yeah yeah no it's like i've been asked that question actually recently it's like well who's whose fault was it who was at the most fault and it's like everybody i'm not gonna say trump biden obama bush clinton everybody at the everybody at the strategic level is screwed up in some kind of way yeah and then at the tactical level people were just trying to band-aids on sucking chest wounds yeah that's 100 percent. that's yeah and it's just it, it it doesn't matter, especially when you're like you were saying, like in the moment, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, uh, wow, this is, this is stupid, but uh, you you seen Black Hawk Down? Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> you remember at the very end of the movie when uh, the character, uh, the Delta guy, who who is yep. talking to uh, oh, shoot, what's his name? I can't I remember the name of the actor. I know yeah, exactly. so he's talking to him, and he's talking like once that first bullet flies past your head politics and all that it don't matter yeah it's like it it, it doesn't like in as much crap as you can, like the guy that was cussing you out for treating him like animals like you didn't have any control of the situation right it's like you're just there to do a job and you're going to try to do the job to the best of your ability yeah and that's all that you can do in that situation yeah yeah i definitely we all tried hard as fuck the whole time and I don't remember what I was saying, but yeah, it's, it's, it was, it, it was the best experience of my life. I don't mean best, like positive, but it changed the way I look at life. It changed the way I treat people. It changed the, it changed the level of gratitude that I have for being alive, being in America. <laughs> like I, I, it like no, nobody, nobody prepared me for that. The military prepares you at a very black and white level 
yeah, they make sure you have all the shit that you need. They make sure that you have the training, but like dealing with this stuff emotionally or mentally, nobody told me what it was going to be like. And like all I'd ever heard about deployments or whatever was movies, books, stories from other people that I was in with. And then it, that situation happens to me. The only people that get it are the people that were there or people like yourself who have like devoted time, like you've served and you devoted time to researching this and providing support and giving people voices, et cetera. But I came back from the deployment and I was like, so what, well, how do I deal with this shit now? Like, how do I, how do I spin this in a positive way now? And uh, yeah, that I, I said it before, this isn't like a pity. Like I don't want any, like I'm not trying to look for like pity, but it's just like, that shit like ruined me. I'm better for it now. And I'm like good now, but I felt, I just felt so let down and I, I, it's not like a pity party. It's not like a, I want fucking people to like coddle me, but it's just like, it's just a, it's like a very, it's a, it was like a thankless experience where <laughs> I, I thought we were there. Like I, on paper, we evacuated a hundred plus thousand people. But like in reality, we put them in that situation. And when we tried getting them out, we thrust them into a fucking humanitarian crisis. We threw them in a fucking hangar with concrete floors and cots and no, and not enough food, not enough resources, not enough people and not enough understanding and not enough. I felt like we didn't do enough. And, uh, it's just like such a, it was such a weird, like you just come back and everybody's just patting you on the back. Good fucking job, dude. You fucking met, you killed it. Like you're, you're a fucking stud. And it's like, am I though? Or was I just kind of like a little pawn and like, I, I'm a poster boy. Like it looks good. It looks like I, we made this and we did, but do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I do. I'm just trying to think of a, a a good analogy that I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a good analogy or not. You can tell me if it's bullshit, but it's like, I mean, everybody in the military, especially on the lower enlisted level, like E five and below, especially, we're all we're all pawns to some point. Correct. But it's like at in in H and and OAR and uh, and allies welcome. Pawns had to do the jobs of knights to get shit done. True. I don't know if that's a good analogy or not. You can tell me it's fucking no, stupid. No, no, that is exactly what it is. Like the pawns had to undo some of the moves that the knights made. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? Like we we put those people in that situation by uh, not being more aggressive at fucking destroying terrorists. We killed a lot of fucking bad guys. We did a lot of really good shit, but that weird gap after like 2013, 2014, when things like really slowed down in the Middle East and we kind of focused more on like enabling Afghan army and Afghan police to kind of like take control of their own country. And then we just like assumed that it would work out. And then the evac was such a shit show because we didn't prepare enough. We didn't do enough beforehand. So like, I'm here to save you. I'm here to get you out of here. And in reality, I'm like, we made it as painful and as difficult and for them as we could have <laughs> like yeah that part sucks for me a little bit but uh yeah yeah 
what do you think? Probably good for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was just going to ask you if you had any other, I don't know, any any impressions or stories that you had that you feel like you didn't go over or something that like just comes to mind or um we could we could talk again like if if you like go through your notes or something and you think like you want to know more about this or that but the biggest thing that i want or that i not the biggest thing but i i want i want it to like i don't know how to say it those of us that were like in the in the air force in Qatar during that whole time. The only thing that we gave a fuck about was people on the Americans on the ground in HKIA. I'm not going to like, I'm not going to say that I didn't care about partner forces and et cetera, et cetera. But like the only thing that we gave a fuck about was like, damn, those Marines are fucking going through, going through it right now. And like those army dudes are fucking going through it right now and sailors and spec ops dudes and whoever the fuck else was there. But like, that's all we, like we were, it was such a frustrating time because we would like be there for like, we would be involved with something for like two or three hours. And then we're just back in like Qatar, which is like safe fucking fairy tale land pool, Dairy Queen mall, movie theater, all that shit. Like it was fine. Like it was cush. And all we thought about was just how it's like, why did these dudes army like these dudes, they work so hard. They're just as good as me. They're my peers. They're my fellow service members or brothers and sisters. But they're the ones that are getting stuck with, I mean, it's the nature of the job, your Marine infantry, your Army infantry, or whoever you are. But it was frustrating that it was just constantly like, we were just always like worried, concerned, and wanted to help. We all wanted to fucking be there. Like we all wanted to, like, that was just a nonstop. I wonder how the dudes on the ground are doing. I fucking, I wonder what the gates look like. I wonder what, like, that was all we cared about. Moving refugees was just kind of like, yeah, this is good. This is what we're here for because we're the Air Force and because we have the aircraft. Like, this is what we're doing. But, like, yeah, I I can't put it into words that well because I'm kind of retarded. But <laughs> what, what I'm trying to say is just, like, you joined the you, number one. You joined the Air Force, right? That's like people join the military. That's like the least retarded thing to do. Join the Air Force. <laughs> yeah. I should have joined the fucking Air Force. <laughs> My I, dad told me I should have joined the Air Force. He was really mad when I joined the Marines. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just like, I really, I really do give the most honor and respect to all the people that were on the ground in HKI to make make all this happen because I think it's at some point this country is going to fucking recognize at the level that you and I do of how significant it was and how historic it was. But this country is too busy with the million other things that are wrong. But yeah, just nothing but love and respect. We just have nothing. We as the Air Force, the love and respect for fucking Marines and soldiers who are like in combat arms jobs and are in more so in harm's way. It's. It needs to. I want it to be known that that is there, like that, that love and respect. Because uh, at the end of the day, all the fucking jokes about other branches and fucking Marines eat crayons and the Navy's gay and the Air Force, <laughs> you know what I mean? All that shit. Like, that's all a fucking joke. When, when push came to shove and like shit was really happening, we all, the team, the collective U.S. military was like, we really gave a fuck about. It about each other and uh yeah the last thing this is stupid as hell 
all the Marines came back, all the Marines came back from HKIA and I was, uh, <clears throat> we had just come back from a mission. Uh, so this was like beginning of September, I think we had just came back from a mission and we were at the armory turning in our weapons and, uh, all these fucking Marines come from HKIA and I was like, yo, what do you guys want? What do you need? And the dude was like water. And I was like, yeah, I got you. And I ran back into the army because there's all these everywhere in deployment, there's cases of water stacked to the fucking ceiling. So I grabbed a case of water and I gave it to the Marine. I was like, sorry, dude, it's warm. And he was like, that's the most Air Force shit you could have ever said. He's like, I don't give a fuck if it's warm. I was like, all right, fair, fair. My bad, my bad. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of like some interactions I've had with like army dudes. Like, yeah, sorry, this isn't like the best shape. I'm like, I don't give a fuck. I have it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. They were fucking sleeping in the we had like cushy ass dorms and they were like they put them up in the gym. They put cots in the gym. I was like, damn, we can never hook these dudes up, huh? They just always have to have the shittiest gear, the shittiest conditions, the worst treatment. Like, yeah. Yeah, almost anything is better than the ground. I say almost because there are a couple of things that are worse than the ground. I would rather sleep <laughs> on the ground than certain things that I've slept on in the past. But you know, cots in the gym is perfectly adequate, especially after something like that. Sure. So, no, y'all, y'all did y'all's part spectacularly, and I will pass on. I'll pass on everything you said to everybody that I know and that I've talked to, and one hundred percent, I know they'll appreciate it as much as I do right now. So, thank cool. you for that. And, Thank yeah. you for your time and everything else. And yeah, dude. Yeah, you got you got anything else for me before we start wrapping this up? No, no. I I, I just want to <laughs> reiterate. I appreciate what you do. I appreciate what everybody at the OAR Foundation is doing. Yeah, thank you. I think it's cool as hell. I think it's really important. I think it needs to keep happening. And I think uh, I think what you guys are doing is really important. And I wish you had seven million fucking followers. And I wish that this type of shit was. Uh, in the news and not bullshit you know what i mean but um yeah no i appreciate you for real and uh i'm not like a i'm not the best at like putting this stuff into words and being specific and explaining stuff well but i appreciate you giving me the time to share my story kind of all over the place but i uh yeah i legit haven't fucking talked about it like ever and i haven't talked about it for more than two minutes ever <laughs> i've given the fucking quick little elevator speech to some fucking general who wants to give me a coin or some, you know what I mean? Like I've done that. Yes, sir. We fucking performed, you know, like, yeah, I, I appreciate it a lot. Yeah. No problem. I hope. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad. I hope it was a, I hope it was a very positive experience, a very cathartic experience for you to be able to get everything out of the last. Yeah. It's, yeah. But, yeah, if you I, mean, have, I, don't, I don't care how I don't care how long an interview lasts. Like I've done interviews that lasted like over six hours. That's I, crazy. I did an interview that lasted over six hours one time. I got no issue. I'll go as long as you want to go. This I don't makes care. me. This makes me like I could never do a fucking podcast. I've literally never <laughs> long in my life. I don't know how people do that shit all the time. But yeah, uh, yeah if you have any like questions or want to know more, you want to talk again, email, text, whatever. I'm cool. If you're I'm not trying to be like a dick or anything. Like, I don't necessarily want like my name or my face. You can use my pictures, use my stories, but like, I don't, I'm just, I'm weird about that stuff. I'm not like a, I just don't want it to ever be about like, this is, and this is what he did. It's about 
guys and girls that lost their lives. And it, like, it's not, it's just not about us. Story, the stories are cool. The stories are important. My story is important. I agree. But the bigger mission and the bigger picture of like what you guys are doing, I think that's more important. Honoring the fallen, honoring their, like supporting their families and educating the American public about like what really happened. But yeah, I'd prefer not to use my face. I don't know if yeah. you were recording this to use my face, in which case that would be kind of fucked up. <laughs> I feel like a real asshole, but I hope I'm not sounding like rude or like, I'm, I'm just saying it like I, I don't want credit. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's probably fine and reasonable. It's like at the very least for the time being, I'm not putting any, I don't, I'm recording video and audio, but I haven't released any video from any interviews that I've done. I'm not planning on doing that anytime soon. Cool. And if you want your name taken out of the interview, that's perfectly acceptable. I mean, yeah, I'm not, you just... I'm not trying to make your job like difficult by any means. It's just like a personal choice. I like wanted to share the story, wanted to get you the information. I don't know how much information I gave you or perspective I gave you, but like, I just like, uh, don't want my name. I like, just, I don't want any kind of like, this is said this, like, just cause I'm fucking weird. Yeah, no, that's fine. Perfectly reasonable. I've I've had guys make that request. So cool. yeah, you're not making my life any easier. That's perfectly within the parameters of what I'm doing here. Cool. This is your interview. This is your story. This is your testimony. It's within your right to have that kind of ownership over it, in my opinion. So 100%. And apart from that, just, yeah, if you have any pictures or videos that you feel comfortable with sharing with me and with the organization, absolutely send it to uh, my yeah. OAR email. For sure. And apart from that, if there's any other guy, what are you saying? I sent you? Yeah, to uh, oaroperations.org. Yeah. That one. Yeah. Cool. I was thinking. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, if you have any other guys who are who would want to give their perspective on things, high, low, I don't, I don't care who, anybody, doesn't Air Force, Army, Marines, guys who may have bumped into any refugees that you may have contacts with or whatever, they want to give their side of the story yeah i'm here cool man I'm, yeah i'm willing to take in everything anything and everything yeah if you think of anything you need clarification stories pictures whatever hit me up but yeah i appreciate you for real thank you not a problem man i'm just i'm very appreciative of your time and uh yeah thank you for the perspective that you gave especially since you're the first air force guy that i've actually talked to you which is very i'm very pleased with i've been wanting to for a while oh cool oh yeah so i'm very very happy it was you it was been for me at least it's been a really good experience i hope it's been for you as well yeah absolutely dude wow you got nothing else for me i got nothing else for you cool man yeah i didn't think we were going to talk this long so that's cool <laughs> all right but again I, I appreciate it very much and hope this was good and hope you're doing good Thanks, feel free man. to reach out to me you got my number now yeah same reach to out to me and I'll, I'll get back and uh just send me a text or a call or something and i'll get back to you when i can if i don't get to you right away for sure Thanks, man. I appreciate it. No problem, dude. All right. Have a good night, homie. You too, man. See you.